0: now! Today's show is brought to you by FreshBooks. If you believe that living your best life includes being your own boss, then you've got to try FreshBooks. Find out how FreshBooks helps millions of service-based business owners make everyday invoicing and accounting easy, fast, and secure. Wow! You're going to get organized in no time, all while printing out invoices, creating expense reports, and so much more. So what are you waiting for? Put your business back in the palm of your hand. For a 30-day free trial, check out GoFreshBooks.com slash Directors Club. That's GoFreshBooks.com slash Directors Club. Don't worry if you're driving or at the gym. The link is in the show notes for future reference. If you want to try out some amazing software and support the show, you have nothing to lose. Give it a try. GoFreshBooks.com slash Directors Club.
1: Uh, welcome to Directors Club. Uh, my name is Bill Ackerman. Uh, hello, and uh, I'm Al Kaczkowski. So, Jim uh, Laskowski is not joining us today. He's in meetings with Aaron Sorkin all this week and can't make it.
0: <laughs> uh,
1: he'll be returning in two weeks with a new guest to the show, Eric Antoine. Um, they're going to be talking about the work of N. Night Shyamalan, the controversial director of Praying with Anger, Wide Awake, and a series of suspense films. <laughs> um, yeah, this show is going to be one of five ongoing podcasts at www.nowplaynetwork.net, Jim's uh, network. I did want to just point out for listeners that they can check out Jim on the new episode of Movie Madness, uh, Eric Childress's show. Uh, they're talking about the Jeff Nichols film Midnight Special. Um, Jim Hankey is speaking with Brian Stack from The Late Show with Stephen Colbert and Conan on his show, Vinyl Emergency. My show, uh, Supporting Characters, is going to be out in a few days with uh, guest Heather Drain. Uh, she's a writer that you might have read in Video Watchdog or on Dangerous Minds. Um, hopefully this isn't like the Halloween Three of Directors Club where you don't have any of the characters you know and love. <laughs> um, but uh, we'll do what we can, Al. So I wanted to ask you about Adam Agoyan.
0: Exotica Everybody knows The sweet hereafter Nobody saw The devil's not Everybody knows I'm from Canada Influenced by Persona I'm turn. Adam Egoyan, yo. Everybody knows I'm Adam Egoyan. I really like Harold Pinta. I won awards over in cons. <laughs> I directed the adjuster. Everybody knows about. What was your first?
1: Uh, what was your first exposure to him?
2: Um, my first exposure to Egoyan was like uh, when um, I saw that uh, a film of his called Exotica was being uh, promoted out from like the Chicago Reader, and um, and it um, the description sounded uh, like really interesting. It was kind of like the era of like Basic Instinct and other types of like um, uh, like um, uh, thrillers of that kind of vein. And it was saying that this was uh, that this was a kind of film, but it had a it had a heart to it and a soul to it, which I thought was pretty intriguing. And then when when I saw the film, I was just rather taken aback and amazed by it. And um, and the the more times I've seen it, the more it's like um, uh, qualities, the more different and amazing qualities came to the fore for it. And I basically became a fan of his from uh going from then on. And then I, I followed up with this with the suite hereafter, which was just that was an amazing combination. And, um and that started me like delving uh, backwards, uh, at, backwards for his filmography and forwards with his uh, new releases from then on.
1: Yeah, I think Exotica was also my introduction to a it actually played at a, like a local mall uh like a suburban mall it was it was the year after pulp fiction and heavenly creatures and clerks and a lot of other films that miramax had been kind of making kind of greater i guess commercial inroads into suburbia where i was living at the time and um i think it was being kind of posited as a kind of thinking man showgirls if, if memory serves i, I may be <laughs> mixing that up I, maybe that's how it was on video but um
2: Yes, there was yep. a basic instinct kind of level, and then also I remember that like it was also compared with Pulp Fiction in the sense that it was a non—it was playing with time and uh, playing with time and distance in an unconventional way.
1: Yeah, well, I think the I think people sometimes might forget the uh, yeah the impact of Pulp Fiction and Tarantino on someone like agoyan who would, you know, superficially not seem to have much in common, like just the, the adventurous way of of playing with narrative. I mean, that was hip at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also, you know, the, the whole uh, way that they could market his films for their uh, steamy quality, their sexual quality. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something that Miramax, you know, had perfected, you know, before then with, you know, selling Peter Greenaway or Almodovar or... Uh, even crime Game, you know, they're pushing the sexual uh, aspects for these, you know, thinking, thinking man's softcore. <laughs>
0: um
1: And I think that's actually something that holds true to most of Egoin's post-Exotica work, too. If you look at the way even something like Ararat or Adoration, which are not sexy films, <laughs> are mm-hmm. uh, sold. It's often with uh, nude bodies somewhere on the uh, poster art.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess the Miramax kind of known for like if there's if uh, your film has like one female character who is just as effective a cameo, that's the one who's making the
1: cover. Yeah, pretty much. I think um, for me, so Exotica, I saw it and uh, I found it really interesting. I was not expecting it to be as uh, I don't want to say confusing, but definitely a lot a lot more work to kind of decode the narrative than I think I was expecting from you know, a striptease thriller from Miramax. And then uh what really made me a fan though was uh seeing The Adjuster. Ah. Um that was the film that when I checked that out, because that had a lot of the same cast as uh as Exotica, but it had like a slightly David Lynch kind of feel to it, especially mm-hmm. the um the music is a lot more closer to Angela Mente in places, but with Michael Dana's kind of more exotic Influences kind of mixed in with it, right? Um, and I was a huge David Lynch fan at the time, still, still am. But I mean, that back then it was uh, a time when I was really fascinated with David Cronenberg and David Lynch, and this felt like, oh, it's like David Lynch, but with the re- called rational explanations of Cronenberg. So this was something that felt really exciting to me at that age. I think it was eighteen or nineteen when those films were were out, and then you know, The Sweet Hereafter. On I was seeing everything pretty much as it came out. And then I went backwards. I think I I was going to school uh, in Ithaca and they had a a retrospective series on all of his early features um, on the big screen at Cornell Cinema. I was going to school in Ithaca. And um, so I got to see family viewing and speaking parts and calendar and the adjuster all on the big screen. And that really kind of drove it home that he was someone I was really a big fan of.
2: Oh, you were in for, that was a great opportunity because like he's, his visuals definitely get rewarded on seeing on a big screen, and so I, I kind of envy the opportunity that you had to get the speaking parts and Juster and Calendar on the on the widescreen treatment.
1: Yeah, it almost felt like um, I don't know. It was it was really exciting, and the thing is, is that he has themes that tie in together in those early works, especially that make it. Yeah, even when later films get frustrating for me, there's still the fun of trying to find those themes uh, from the old films in the more overtly commercial things he does uh, in, in more re- recent years. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's it's like following a band that you like their early independent records and maybe they're, you know, now they're on a bigger label and doing uh, maybe a little bit more straightforward work, but you still... You still have that relationship with the past and it, it still kind of informs your impression of, you know, works that might not be your favorite from them.
2: <laughs> oh, yes. I mean, like his I mean, his approach to the past, the way that like um, your me- the way you me- people's memories work and, and especially how people's um, uh, past remembrances compare with the viewing that they do through through like uh, home movies or, vi- or video cassettes is um and how and the way that those are distinct i mean it kind of is a very very it's a very modern kind of theme that he seems to do through a lot of his work that that i don't frankly i think uh could filmmaking could stand to do more
1: of you know yeah well i think that he what he has said uh, essentially is that he always expected the viewer that the, the ideal viewer in his head had uh to be inquisitive, had to be searchers, uh, not passive spectators. They had to be excited to do a little work. And I think what he's come to conclude in the recent years is that maybe that viewer just isn't out there. Maybe that audience that had that interest in his kind of more formalist inventions never really was there, that they were always maybe coming for something else, maybe the more lurid aspects of it. Mm -hmm. I think you see that reflected in the more recent films, maybe that, that disappointment, but also that desire to keep in work. Mm-hmm. Um, he's someone that, uh, the short films that he does on the side, and actually, I've never been able to see one of his installations, but he has a pretty prolific career doing installation works also. Hmm. That, that I think, feeds his desire to experiment. Um, but I don't, I don't know that you will get something as intricate as uh, Speaking Parts. Or ararat, uh, or even adoration from him, unless unless I'm wrong, unless the financing just comes into it uh, from un- unexpected sources. If he gets a uh, like a benefactor, the way someone like Paul Thomas Anderson or you know one of the the, the hot auteurs of today gets, I mean, I, I just think that the financing has to come from you know more straightforward storytelling
2: <laughs> yeah i mean it's uh, i th- it's gonna be really interesting for us to take a look uh when we get to his like later work because it's um because uh, i'm very curious as to how much of his themes are a level of like are of a level of like um uh real um uh real politic i guess from uh sense of in the sense of like well maybe there isn't an audience for it but i compare it in, to like say some uh filmmaker like christopher nolan who is now making these incredibly huge scale ones that uh like are so many many times over in their scope from his earlier films and yet in still in even films such as um inception and interstellar he manages to put his own personal theme still managed to manifest it you know so i think that the kind of um, themes and concerns that he does are still able to, you know, show themselves up even if he makes like uh, a, a film aimed towards more of a general audience. Or at least I would hope that he still thinks that's a possibility and doesn't relegate it just to art installations and galleries and, you know, and such.
1: Yeah, well, I think I think you can find evidence of his themes in Remember, which, funny you mentioned Christopher Nolan. I mean, Memento was the first film I thought of ah. um, when when thinking back on how that story unfolds. But even something like The Captive, you still have traces of the old Adam McGowan films in it. I think it's just, in a way, it almost reminds me of what happened to David Cronenberg. I mean, after Spider, it felt like he made a really conscious decision to not necessarily become a hired gun or a hired hand but to work with outside material more to uh to not make it quite so difficult and austere and i think the same thing you could you can find it in goyan's films post-adoration hmm. films like chloe and the captive uh are definitely taking a larger audience you know keeping them in mind especially chloe yes uh, but we'll get to that one when we get uh, a little further into the conversation, mm-hmm. so you just saw some of his early short films uh, recently. Um, you said you saw Peep Show mm-hmm. and uh, Open House. What did you think of those, especially coming to them as a new viewer? Um, I was um, uh, I was uh,
2: ma- rather amazed by a moment in um, Open House because it uh, open because Open House. Harkens to a part, very particular image that in Exotica that uh, we'll we'll get to when, we'll, uh, when we get to uh, discuss that movie in general. That and and it was really startling to me how he's able to make the the interior and exterior of the house and, and, and inscribe so much interesting meaning through it. Like um, uh, uh, Open uh, Open House is a great example of to me of like how he's he's contrasting uh like a situation from like what happens inside that house it's all in, in the way it's, it's spare and austere and and very monochromatic with the movement that he does outside in the backyard of this upset house and and the distinction is just uh really really interesting to me
1: yeah the, the thing I was reminded of watching open house was this is maybe an obscure thing but uh the garden outside reminded me of the garden in Felicia's journey
2: yes that's right like and uh right the there is a there is a way of like how he's this when characters are describing like sort of the history of the house and that yard and then the camera like starts moving in a in a very slow graceful way to make uh, to turn this like dilapidated area into like an almost Edenic thing. It's like a, um, uh, it presents it as a, a paradise or a, or, or what was a once a paradise just through like it's move, just through like the camera movement.
0: Yeah.
1: I, I guess I should mention just for, for people that want to see that film, it's not widely available, but is it is on the, um, the uh, I think it's zeitgeist release of next of kin and family viewing. They include some of Adam McGaughan's early short films. Mm-hmm. Um, and just to it, get like a little bit of a, a background on the, on the story of
2: it, it's, it's about like, um, uh, a uh, kind of a strange, um, uh, 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 real estate person, uh, uh, showing a young couple, a, a, some uh, a house that's a little out of shape in a, in a uh, growing neighborhood. And as they, as they explore, they, as they explore the house, they, Look, they find a little more about the history of it, and and you get a you get a back more of a background of some of the very interesting things that went on there.
1: Yeah, I think when I saw that film, it felt like the closest to what I associate the feeling of next of kin, which is a little bit warmer than I tend to associate with early Adam And Like, there's a I don't want to say sentimental, but there's there's definitely a warmth and affection for the characters. They, they seem a little bit more approachable than than what comes later. Uh, what was the first time you saw Next of Kin?
2: Um uh the first time I saw Next of Kin was just um uh, um a year a year or so ago like it was um uh playing out at um uh, a, a local Chicago um uh, independent uh um uh film center and um uh, it was advertised as like the uh, um the um, Igoyans, um uh, like first film. And so like it was um uh, and so it was very interesting to see. And, uh, and then when I saw it, it was quite, int- quite fascinating how distinct it is from his work. Cause I think you were right that it is his most sentimental.
1: Yeah. Well, it's interesting cause it, it has like this teen angst kind of angle to it. It's, you know, uh, you know, for people that haven't seen it, it's a story of a, uh, kind of an offbeat young man, uh, who is coming from a very, uh, Unhappy relationship with his uh kind of waspy middle upper middle class parents, and he goes to a video therapy session and sees a family uh who uh are of Armenian descent, and they are dealing with family tensions of their own uh partly due to the uh the loss of their uh of the older son uh who's gone missing. And he he the, the young man pretends to be their son and it infiltrates their family under this false pretense and it's 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 got a comedy to it that and a warmth to it that um, to some extent I think Adam Gauguin dislikes the film because of that warmth maybe slightly accidental um, I don't know if you've heard his commentary on the film but what essentially it was is that the, some of the camera work. Takes on a subjective quality as it's meant to, I guess, embody that missing son. But the way it plays out, it just has the feel of a um, of a naturalistic docudrama kind of storytelling device. So it actually feels a little bit less controlled than something like family viewing or speaking
0: parts. Um, yes, yeah.
2: yes, it's um uh, right. There was a pre- I did get was lucky enough to uh, take a look at it recently and, and see with the commentary, and there was. One particular moment that, that kind of stood out to me that, that Igoyan had uh, pointed that was re- really fascinating and already showed like the kind of like creative thought process that he had behind even like his earliest films. And it was where like he's, um, well, character is watching one of these video, one of these like therapy sessions, which is are all, all videotaped. And it's filmed in a style of like a surveillance camera that's panning back and forth. But then, when they get to a particular emotional moment, the camera then like lifts off and becomes a um and then be- cuts really really close to the family, like almost sort of like a, over looking over their shoulders, and it suddenly becomes more like way more personal or way more intimate. And uh, and Igoyan has mentioned there that it was that it was something that like he thought would be a a, a real great break from an audi- uh, to an audience, and they would go, "What the heck's going on?" But People seem
1: to take it in stride, and which is a, an interesting discovery. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I, I think that um, one thing about egoyan so he was born in Cairo, but his family relocated to Canada when he was only two. And he, I guess, initially uh, did not connect with his Armenian heritage, but then came back to it in a big way uh, as he, you know, around probably like college student age. And he kind of grapples with themes of his Armenian heritage and identity in a number of the films. And this is really where it starts, um, that slipping into the Armenian family, uh, in a way they seem to represent a kind of authenticity that the original parent, his, his actual biological parents lack and that kind of equating, uh, you know the the armenian side of the equation with more uh you know that that th- there's more there's more to respect ultimately i guess like the the parents the biological parents are almost like caricatures from an absurdist comedy right and um in another way it's also because he's not biologically related to the family and the sister that's around his age uh who can kind of see through this charade a little bit there's a sexual tension there that is maybe also the first time he's playing with themes of incest in a very very uh, subterranean kind of way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, he- so it's right off the bat. It, it's playing around with 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 a lot of material that will get kind of fleshed out in the larger budget features.
2: Oh yes, yes, absolutely. It was really remarkable to see how like like al- already in his like first feature like. So many things are coming up in in this film that are that like have pervaded his that pervaded his work his his just examination of what is appropriate and in, inappropriate in human behavior for one thing and 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 like and I'm glad you brought up his history because it's also uh, interesting how he explores like what. Where where do the relationships between people where do they get value I I kind of think next of kin does it in a in a what to me is a little bit of a simplistic way to just say like the in a way to say the family is the you know the, ultimately the people you care about as opposed to like your biological connections um, I think that's a theme that he's refined over his over his work but it's already show, shown up as a subject of exploration. And the way that he does, the way that he looks at, um, the way he looks at people observing other people, and, and the awareness that people have about it, is already some a big concern of his in this first movie.
1: Yeah, I I think I I, I think it's it's a, I don't know if it's a if it's the best place to start with Adam McGowan, but I think that people that get put off by some of the chillier films that come later might find this kind of a. Kind of a, a kind of an intriguing like uh, little surprise i don't know it, it it's it's a modest small scale kind of independent film i mean it looks it looks you know like it was made for very little money but it has the same kind of um I don't know if you know films like like Chan is missing from Wayne Wang or um uh even some of the early jarmish films like down by law like it has that that kind of um it, it feels like that kind of small scale independent it feel, almost like a small scale independent american film uh in a way that like the ones that feel like a lot more calculation involved in the design maybe don't um and that's one thing about adam goyim films i guess we're gonna really uh kind of uh tackle is that these are intellectual films like there's not a lot of accidents in them i mean almost everything that feels like it has a symbolic meaning it probably has a symbolic meaning like there you listen to his commentary tracks or hear him in interviews and he he intends all sorts of things to be read into almost every moment, but he comes closer to uh, someone like Greenaway or somebody like, I don't know about Bergman, but like there, there's there's an intellectual uh, component to it that I, I guess a lot of American filmmakers tend to not, they tend to be more intuitive. And that might be where a lot of viewers maybe get tuned out on a going. It's the fact that there is, I don't wanna say an airlessness, but there there is a um a deliberate quality to a Goyan that might be exhausting. Um, <laughs> if you if you want like the looseness of an Altman or a Cassavetes, you're not you're not gonna find it with a Goyan.
2: Um uh he's like I the kind of film right, the kind of filmmaking that he he does, like does have bring bring about this sensibility that I I I always find rewarding in that like you can tell from even his earliest pictures that he ha- that he puts a level of thought between the between the images and the performances and and the story that he's uh, that he's trying to tell um and and i think like in a case like with next of kin um i think that even a, a, the general audience would find that um find that enjo- could find it enjoyable without even needing to give too much further thought because it is very effective on its sentiment it i think i find that like the feelings and the sense of belonging and and connecting with people is is uh very like direct and and um uh delivered really well in in the film um and it's i think when he's expanded on his like later works he's explored with more more ideas upon like like putting up formal concepts and um and withholding information in a way that like maybe leaves audiences a little more a, a little more adrift and and requiring them to be a little more actively engaged with a film. But I find that like when you um uh, the more you engage with any any Huguayan film like just the more rewards there are to be had because he he does put these elements in there and they're there to be revealed.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that. I think um, I think after Next of Kin, so Next of Kin did not immediately open doors for him in terms of making another feature. And I think that's a period where he does a bit of television work. I, I, I don't know if you got a chance to see any of his like episodic television work. I've only seen uh, the Friday Thirteenth television series work, and it's huh. it's enjoyable but kind of anonymous. Um, you wouldn't be able to. Trace too much going in that. I was not able to get a, uh, a copy of his Alfred Hitchcock presents uh, episode. <laughs> wow, like um, uh, like the eighties uh, but not is... the original one.
2: <laughs> yes, yes. The um, uh, the uh, Egoyan's level of suspense, uh, how Egoian deals with suspense, would, would be really interesting to me because he does do suspense, but in a in a, in a very particular way in his in his feature films and. It makes me wonder what brought him into t v um, to get these episodes
1: put in the first place. I think it was just to keep working. I think mm. that uh, next of kin barely i don't think it even got reviewed by all the major papers in Canada because it wasn't taken uh, you know taken as seriously as his his work would become in later years and i don't know that it even got wide distribution in the u s at the time or overseas. Uh Family Viewing is really where things start to change for him. Yes. Um and not just because the vendors gave his Wings of Desire prize to uh Family Viewing when it played at uh was I forget it was Berlin which festival that was but that was where huh, he wow. started he started attracting um uh, the first real attention as a uh, international figure. Um and Family Viewing is you know, probably where the classic early Egoian themes and style really kind of coalesce. Um, it's such a, I don't know what constitutes like, uh, what, what, what's best not to spoil about the story. Uh, but I guess we'll, we'll just have to go into it. Uh, what, do you remember the first time you saw family
0: viewing?
2: Um, uh, I saw family viewing, uh, just fairly recently actually as, um, uh, as, as something to go and, uh, uh, um, explore throughout the, for this very, uh, podcast in fact. So, when i when I saw it I was very um I was very intrigued by how it kind of seemed to me that the sentiment that Igoin saw in next of kin um he w- um was something that he did not want to emphasize as much as the kind of formal changes that he did was making in that film so it seems to me that family viewing is kind of a reaction to it like he's, he's looking at the idea of like like for the video presentation versus what's versus like film presentation for one thing like it's really doing some interesting explorations in, in what's what's where are you getting an emotion where are you getting a feeling from and 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 how the technology is warping those feelings and
1: sentiments you know yeah I think I mean this is where you really see technology and the way that it records memories. Uh, becoming a theme, and uh, and also the way that sexuality and me- sexuality and the rituals that people kind of assign to their sexuality uh, that that all becomes part of the mix. Uh, yes, I, I know that they they tend to emphasize in uh, writing about family viewing the the differences in uh, format, video and film. I I find it so seamless that it never even really sticks out to me, that they are playing with the different uh, types of recording the story. Wow. Uh, beyond, beyond the fact that it, you know, I mean, things that are meant to be television images have a different texture. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's... Yes,
2: uh, the it's, texture to me, like, really, the texture to me, like, really goes and um, uh, fits the characters to me, like, just so well. Like, it's uh, in in the sense of, like the fa- like, the father figure. He is one very very screwed up individual to say the least and yeah and, well, and go ahead sorry i was
1: gonna say it's like the first of several uh you know f- familial conflicts you know with that david david is it david Hemblen, the actor he's always playing mm-hmm. uh kind of a stern questionable authority figure in all these early films of his and he's hilarious in family viewing mm-hmm. um, this, this is where you get a lot of the stock companies starting to come in. I mean, Arsene Kanjan his, uh, his wife comes in with next of kin, but she comes back for this. And then Gabrielle Rose is in a lot of the early films and she's, mm-hmm. uh, part of it. And it's actually the, the, the young man, again, it's another teen, you know, an offbeat young man kind of story. That's, I think the brother of the guy from next of kin playing ah. that lead part, if, if memory serves. Okay. That's he um,
2: does. They do look very familiar. I mean, yeah. similar to each other. I mean,
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's, I mean, it's a story where again, he's he has this fixation on his grandmother, who I think stands in for again a kind of uh, cultural authenticity. You know, the Ar- she's Armenian, as was his late mother, and the. Uh, his memories with his mother like his childhood memories which you know preserve some of his past they're being recorded over by his father uh to make sex tapes with his uh i guess his lover i don't know if they're married but um
0: mm-hmm.
1: it's it's sexuality kind of destroying the authenticity you know the the authentic past and um so that's where the conflict comes in. I don't know that we should spoil all the beats, you know, where the story progresses from there, in case people haven't seen it. Right. That. But no. it's 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 an in, interesting mix of of black comedy, but also, I guess, like a searching kind of philosophical quality to it. I. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's um like it to me like
2: it. it I do see the com the comedic aspects are really interesting because it's. It's the way the rooms of the, of the house where the main family lives are designed in such a way that they just harken to like looking like a a little bit of a cheap soap opera feel to them. Yeah. <laughs> and um uh, and uh, and there's a what a really interesting like running gag as they're they so enjoy watching TV together and there's a real it's it's very amusing upon like how like prob- one some of the more intimate moments that this our main character can have with his father is that his dad goes, will you watch the TV with me as I'm making a sandwich? <laughs> and, um, and there's, there's uh, several times where they're having um, earnest conversations or attempting to earnestly communicate while the TV is blaring and they're and you can tell from what, you can't see what's being shown on the TV, the TV. But what you hear is this just sounds like this atrociously stupid comedy. And, Periodically, the laugh track of said comedy goes and like makes some sort of incredibly funny counterpoint to the earnest things that are attempting to be said
1: yeah it's it's um the the, the, the laugh track in a way gives it the feeling of a of a perverse sitcom and this is way before natural born killers or david lynch 's rabbits or any of the other kind of auteurs that kind of play on like dark twists on the sitcom. <laughs> Wow. Yes,
2: Um, exactly. And I think it's also quite a a way ahead of its time of the uh, legendary uh, Sex Lies and Videotape.
1: I was just going to bring that up. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if Soderbergh ever saw it it, because in a way, Sex Lies feels closer to uh, a goyen with more naturalistic performances.
2: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yes. Like, right. It's, it's kind of like looking at some raw material that Soderbergh managed to put in like a more accessible and, um, and uh, familiar format. Uh, but I see, I feel that like Egoian's definitely exploring it, it in a in a very um uh in a very kind of formal way, like basically like saying, well, how much of what you're watching are you meant to believe, and how much value do you get from it by by thinking that this is a movie you're watching, or the things that uh, when you see the characters talking uh, or watching videotapes, how much value and how much feeling are they get from the things they're viewing on video and i think he's really kind of he was i think he's still ahead of his time right now with the release of a films like uh um, family viewing because he was seems to me a kind of a prophet in the way that people are viewing and reviewing their lives and looking at their feelings through technology and how that changes it and that's an area which not not a lot of people are really fully exploring today. And he was already looking at this, like, what,
1: now, 20 years ago? Yeah, I think by the time you get to the social media of adoration, it almost feels redundant for him to explore that material any further. But he <laughs> was already there, uh, you know, in the 80s. Right. Um, at a time when even just having personal home video technology, I don't know when he wrote it how prevalent that, oh, I guess that was prevalent in the uh By that point in the eighties, but it it still wasn't subject for many films mm-hmm. um, one thing i do, just wanted to point out um uh, you know c- comparing it to next of kin um the relationship Arsene has with the young man in uh next of kin has a most a romantic feeling, even though they 're meant to be of the same family and What I thought about watching family viewing this time is how when he meets her character in family viewing and you think that that's going to develop, develop into a, a romance, but they become more like siblings uh, than the characters in next of kin. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> like they're, it, they're creating a, a combine. they're combining their families.
2: <laughs> right. Right. It's like, um, uh, maybe this is just, I, I fully acknowledge that there might be my Kubrick, uh, 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 fandom coming to the fore, but I kind of almost think in this kind of way, like that he's, he has this kind of aguin has a way of like taking a step back and being able to look at society and family relations with a level of remove and exploration that is um that i don't know maybe some people may find off putting but i think it's just really interesting how he in, in family viewing, he's looking at literal the idea of like displacement, like a one person replacing the, uh, the, um, another person in terms of a, a character's needs or wants, you know, right? In fact, yeah. there is a literal like level of displacement going on that, that happens. That's kind of a part of the plot, in fact.
1: Yeah, I think, um, I think it's an interesting jump from family viewing then to, uh, speaking parts, which I think, I think it was the third or fourth film of his I saw. Uh, And that, when I saw it, I saw it backwards. So when I saw the adjuster first speaking parts felt like the logical predecessor to that film. Um, But the, uh, I think, I think that that also is informed by his experiences in television, the compromises that uh, are being made to this television production. That's uh, part of the story. The film within a film in in speaking parts, I think, uh, come from his un- unpleasant experiences taking notes from from creative ah, cre- creative yes. executives.
2: I I can t- now now hearing from you about his like TV work upon like the Alfred Hitchcock Presents and and so and such on um, like that really um uh, uh is it brings an a- avenue to this particular film. That, um uh, that i wasn 't considering before <laughs> makes me yeah. want to like compare his attitudes on TV people to um uh, david lynch 's attitudes on TV people when uh malan
1: drive yeah it's I'm, you could definitely draw a comparison <laughs> but it 's funny I, I I think um trying to trying to sum up the plot of speaking parts is right <laughs> it sets mean, a uh, i mean this is where they become they become like kind of dense mosaics uh, they, I think the uh, one thing I love about it is the um, it's told entirely without dialogue for what, like eight minutes, the first eight minutes. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's so how do we how do we synopsize something like this? I mean, it's a story of a a woman who's obsessed with an actor that she works with. They're both working at a hotel. He's doing extra work in films uh, and she has this clear obsession with him. It's unclear if they were ever romantically involved or if she's just stalking him from afar through the uh the images that she rents from the video store. Um he's trying to land a part in a uh production that's happening there and uh develops a romance with the writer of that production. Um it's fill fill me in here like so what am, what, am, what am I missing? Is there's, there's a uh
2: well there's also like the person that he's has or develops a relationship with is making a film, uh, is, is, is the writer of a film that's being made about like, uh, about her brother and and, who had like, who had passed, who had passed away. And she engages in some sort, uh, in some conflict with the producers of the film, uh, who are trying to like, um, uh, change the story to make it more, to make it more accessible. Uh, most notably in making in turning it into a, um, which now occurs to me is really really funny. They decide to try and make it into a Oprah-like
1: talk show denouement, uh, like later in the film. Well, and not only that, but she has unspoken kind of incestuous feelings about the brother. She goes to uh, like a a video morgue of sorts and watches videos of him approaching a camera and then we see that the young man at the hotel kind of physically resembles him and i think she becomes physically uh she becomes aroused by him because of, of a buried incestual impulse seeing him as the living embodiment of of the brother but without maybe the taboo of actually acting on that 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 incestual feeling it's it's an interesting, uh, perverse kind of uh, narrative, and it's—I um, I guess that's probably where you first really start seeing the ways in which people kind of misplace their, or re- not misplace, but like redirect their their grief in a very unusual way. Yes, that that's right. Is a, recur- a recurring theme in the later films, but this is probably where it starts. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not so much a film that really tackles the cultural. Uh, you know the uh the authenticity theme or or a political theme it, it it's more uh solipsistic um it, which is i guess an accusation you could make of a couple of the films around this period of a career hmm. um they're 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 really um i i never minded but they're navel gazing in in the best sense um that's yeah i,
2: I mean know. he's right it's not a level of i don't think he like uses like the the variance various video elements in air to actually question authenticity it's what i find really interesting is that i think he gives a value to he, he he feels that there is a level of authenticity to those to those um things that people view or people watch like i mean there's a very unusual like sex scene for example on there and how um. uh you know, how much validity do you, uh, apply there? I mean, right. To the kind yeah. of what, how, what intimacy happens in that moment, you know?
1: Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's, you know, a whole lot of, uh, years before, you know, camming and uh, cyber sex and all these kind of things that, you know, are part of life now. But I mean, then it was just a, uh, just black comedy you know yes. playing with technology playing with sexuality mm-hmm. i mean this is the this is the mid-80s still right um, right
2: i mean i honestly like i find that like this is late um 80s. speaking parts is i'm sorry go ahead
1: i just said late 80s i I'm correcting myself oh gotcha
2: <laughs> like um i actually find like speaking parts i i yeah i'm unreservedly recommend it and when i do recommend it to people i actually call it like it's a uh, sex lies and videotapes done right, <laughs> and the reason I say that is because it traffics in that in, in very similar subjects to sex lies in videotape, but where the where the Soderbergh's film is a lot more upon like very, uh, very like um straightforward in how it says boy boy isn't videotaping confessions really weird um it like speaking parts goes several several levels beyond that. And and it's it's way more brave and adventurous in the in just the looking at the at the extensive different kinds of relations that people have with with like viewing with viewing and technology and and using it to using it to connect.
1: Yeah, well, it, it, in a way, it also kind of builds on the ending of, of family viewing in that they they kind of climax in these like musically driven kind of set pieces that kind of break down the laws of reality a little bit in yes. terms of characters being where they shouldn't be. Like it, it becomes kind of more impressionistic at times as it builds to something that is not entirely logical, but more kind of, uh, it, it, it's stating the theme without necessarily it, it's breaking with reality. And that is the best way I can describe it. Um, well, I I don't I would say it doesn't I would say
2: it's not trying to break reality so much as it's trying to push reality. I mean that ending goes and are, are taking these elements that we are like familiar that we are familiar with as viewers from looking at one scene a particular way and another particular angle another way and it's just to me it's this, it it's pulling it it's making it more and more discordant and and but still retaining still retaining this kind of framework and the result at least for me is that like it it's kind of like invigorates those um uh, invigorates those moments uh, just uh like it reminds me in a way of like how the spinning top in um inception how the fact that like it doesn't the fact that it both doesn't fall and do, and almost looks like it'll fall the way that it leaves it open like just makes it so much more resonant to me than if it went
1: one way or the other. Do you see what I mean? I do. I do. And and closure is not something that you get in a lot of these films. I mean, they they end on very uncertain notes without necessarily being unsatisfying.
2: That's right. It's the the way, right. It it like it leaves out this. It leaves the audience the the ending of speaking parts. I mean, the end of it leaves the audience with this question of like of oh, oh, this real interesting question of like what is the reality on, on what on like on the things that we view and where and what values do we assign upon the the things we're witnessing and I think that like like any great piece of art like one notable feature of it is it helps change your perspective or enhance your perspective and I know after I've seen that ending I'm like it, it helps me like have these questions in my own head when I when I view like film or television or or news or what have you. It and and I think by by virtue of pulling these like elements that we're familiar with apart and making them just a little bit more strange, it like really helps increase people's perspective and appreciation of that.
1: Yeah, this I mean if if there's one if there are things that I would caution someone that hasn't seen speaking parts Uh, And I used to recommend it when I worked at video stores to people that were looking for something different and interesting. I would say that it does, it's probably the one that feels most of its time in terms of certain fashion and music choices. (laughs) Um, Like the score at times almost, almost reminds me of uh, late eighties Depeche mode a little bit. uh, (laughs) Right. And some of the, uh, the hairstyles are a little bit more uh, blatantly eighties. I I, I think it's funny as a, uh, as a, Cronenberg fan how many of his uh video, uh video boxes are prominently displayed in that video store too i can't imagine that's accidental No, of course not yeah <laughs> but but it's it's a film that has kind of like this deadpan absurd quality to it in terms of the dialogue and the performances that's not uh, especially naturalistic and so when you get to the adjuster it takes speaking parts as basic approach and kind of makes it 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 broadens it to this Lynchian cinema scope vision of itself. Like it becomes a little bit more, it opens a scope in it, you know, literally and figuratively. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's in, again, it brings back a lot of the same repertory of actors. Uh, Michael Dana, still the uh, composer, Uh, same, uh, actually the same DP on a lot of these films too, is worth noting. Um, uh, what is his name? Uh, Paul Um uh, is actually the guy that shot pretty much from speaking parts to the present. I think is his DP oh. uh, on everything,
2: and he does a great. I mean, I mean, he does a great job. I mean, he's on. Um, uh, I think the uh, speaking parts you just. I mean, it's really, really effective at like expanding um, Igoyan's like just physical range on like and showing multiple settings and like and and like and making it like like work on a like a much higher on a much higher like visual level than than he had before and in terms of like in terms of how expansive that is and i find that like in adjuster it's kind of like made like ironically just more intimate by localizing it in that house but becomes more vibrant through like just the the use on on color i think starts manifesting itself
1: in that film yeah had I had a creative writing professor in college who said that the adjuster was speaking parts for American distributors <laughs> <laughs> um, which I always thought was funny I, it, but it's um yeah it, it, it's this is where you bring in Elias Goteus into the fold as far as the cast, um, but it's otherwise you know Maury shaken uh, I think yeah, that's also the film with Maury Shaken first appeared with ah, um, right Egoyen. but uh, otherwise it brings back Gabriel Rose, Arsene Kanjan um, uh, David hemblin. Um, it's, see, so this is where I first really fell in love with And Even if Exotica is a better film, this was the one that kind of confirmed for me that this was someone I really wanted to investigate the whole career. Um, it's, it's funny because it, you can, the structure, it's, it, it's so apparent when you look back on it, that it is meticulously structured in a way that you can maybe, I know Roger Ebert, when talking about it versus Exotica, said you could see the, um, I don't know how, how he put it exactly, but you, you, you could see the, the, the gears turning or the, you could, you could see the design of it more than with Exotica where it feels more invisible. Right.
2: Yes, uh, it's it's right. I mean, it's a little more, I mean, it's a little more, like, formal in, like, it's, or or kind of direct in the fact that, like, it is a specific examination because the main character is in fact an you know an adjuster. He is a sense of an outsider who is like judging, appraising, looking looking in on the on these um um situations and um uh, and making these uh like uh making these changes to them.
1: Yeah, well, in in a way, his the woman that he lives with uh, is doing the same thing. I mean, she's a she's assigning judgment of content that is uh, for. Uh, Censorship, right? Um, so they are both they're both assessing value to things, um, basically in terms of the story of Jester. It's about this family living in this kind of show house, kind of isolated from their their community. They live in a a development that was never developed, and they have these they have this kind of tense relationship where they're kind of just caught up in their Uh, in these professions they have, Uh, they come into contact with this perverse, wealthy couple who play out these various sexual games in public places. Uh, He's more of a voyeur. She's more of an exhibitionist. Um, This allows for lots of bizarre imagery that is both funny and sexual. (laughs) Um, So it's it's very funny film in a very kind of (laughs) wry... Uh, dark way and the the way that Michael dana scores it 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 feels the most lynchy at times the uh the sense reminds you of twin Peaks or even um yeah the piano parts are a little bit like him too mm-hmm. um but the uh, and the scope framing in a way this comes before lost highway, but it, it, it reminds me of lost highway a little bit too oh. in, the, in the in the style uh but it's uh, it's I think it's probably the best entry point for people that only know Exotica and The Sweet Hereafter um, in terms of uh, exploring the older work. Would you agree with that, or would you prefer one of the other ones?
2: Um, I would. I mean, I it's a really it's a really interesting question. I mean, I kind of think that like my my impression on the Adjuster is that just it's kind of takes. Uh, Takes his uh, his idea his ideas on like appropriate and uh, behavior and makes it um, and it's not as deep or as emphatic as something that Exotica does. It's a little more like I guess I would almost say it's like uh, Cronenberg's Crash done a little done better. <laughs> like it it's him um, because the characters are more engaging. I'm on Team Elias all the way in terms of like. How he can, like, take, and I think that's kind of one of Igorian's, like, incredibly strong suits, is that he can take, like, um, uh, whereas, like, he's sort of like pornography in reverse to me, <laughs> at his best. Like, whereas pornography takes perfectly, um, at perfectly ordinary events, such as a visit to the doctor or a pizza delivery, and makes them sleazy, <laughs> like, Igorian's forte is, uh, the ability to, like, take lurid and subjects that people find weird and disturbing and show the common like humanity that flies underneath that.
1: Yeah. Well, it's interesting that you point up lurid because I feel like that's, and I'm not going to defend crash a third time on this podcast, but uh, (laughs) um, I would say that the lurid quality, that's something that I think even the more commercial projects tend to emphasize. Uh, Mm -hmm. That seems to be the hook that they always use to bring, uh, audiences into these puzzle films that he does yes. is is the uh is that tawdry melodrama feel <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. and i think that like and i think that there 's a level of that Agoyan uh, himself uh, um, uh, finds attractive on these on the ways like people 's behavior can be uh, made weird and strange um and uh something that i believe he has like well personally acknowledged on on numerous occasions um so there's like a level of fascination in addition on on just like it's not like um a, what an anthropological exploration let's say you know he's i mean he see he feels that level of like attraction to these strange subjects but then i think he explores it in a very uh a very like re- very rewarding way for me on the adjuster and um i i kind of find it that it's it is more done for like like uh kind of a humor uh level and and like, it's done kind of also the level of social commentary starts to finally come to the fore on it, you know, the where way you
1: think, yeah, I'm curious where,
2: where, uh, where are you
1: seeing the social commentary come in? Well,
2: it? in the idea of the censorship board, for one thing, like, mm-hmm. like he's, and, and, and also in the sense that like the, uh, also in the sense that like, it's making appraisal of, it's, it's making appraisable on physical things and just and I think it's making more on a statement upon like how how like the um, like how the people people placing value on objects is a is like uh, can be a is like kind of maybe the wrong is the wrong way is the wrong way to go you know like the like the way the the way the house is treated for example is I think kind of meant to be you know a, a very cathartic moment, but then also a commentary upon this that the house is something that like um has been like. Kind of an impediment upon the values people place on it. Wouldn't, don't you? You
1: see what I mean? I do see that. I mean, it, for me, I, I see it almost more of a class thing, also, because this is this is their home and it's being treated as a toy for rich people. So mm-hmm. there's a class aspect to it there, also. Um, and I don't know if that's meant to be. I know I read one piece that kind of described it as a metaphor for how Hollywood treats. You know the locations or treats Canada. Even uh, <laughs> I, I never quite I never quite get that reading of it when I'm actually watching it just as a story. Mm-hmm. Um, but did you know the uh, the autobiographical origins of that? How it was uh, I guess his uh, his father had a uh, a furniture shop and the fire and the adjuster came into their lives and it was based on his own memory of of uh, you, know, you know the old the couple whose whose uh, shop. They have a uh, a furniture shop out of their home. Wow! You know, they're staying at the hotel. That's actually all coming from Aguiar's own uh, personal life. Oh, that's fascinating.
2: Like, um, uh, I also leads me to wonder, like, there's a about the um the store in uh, next of kin that that's featured in that film. I want makes yeah, I'm me sure, we, makes me... sure it's
1: very much related to his own life. Huh, huh. It's <laughs> let me, the ex- ask, you, okay, let me sorry. ask you this. Uh-huh. The um, there's a sexual fluidity to the Elias Kotea's character in the adjuster. He's essentially sleeping with everybody that he helps. Yeah. Um, do you, do you read that as an expression, an expression of him being a very horny guy? Or do you see that as an expression of him taking that much extra effort to take care of people that are in a state of shock? Um, I find it, yeah, I find it in a measure that, like,
2: it's, um, uh, more, a little more on the ladder, actually. Like, I mean, I, I think that, like, it's, he has this kind of level of, that's kind of where the crash comparison to me, you know, comes in. Like, in both cases, Elias Codius is a guy who has a very particular mission that he has, possesses an unusual level of dedication to. Yeah. And, and, like, um, and, like, I find it, like, that it isn't, it isn't something that I think he finds, like personal in a way that satisfies him as much as the idea of the idea that, of finish like the job that he is um required to do like is um is something that he wants to do do right to whatever degree that's successful i mean how do you how do you find
1: him i i think it's a latter also. i mean and it, it, i think it produces some very funny comedy when he's really hashing out the details of a woman's claim mid-sexual act. Yes. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Right. I think that kind of almost rams it home a little bit too, obviously. Right,
2: never stops adjusting. (laughs)
1: Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it's, yeah, I I think that there's there's creepy aspects. I know we're talking about a lot of it in terms of ideas, but in terms of the style, I think it's a very beautiful and creepy film aesthetically. Like, it's maybe... I think that ending is maybe the closest he comes to outright horror. Yes, um, even more so than Felicia's journey or things that are are, are more overtly thrillers. That's right. Um,
2: yeah, yeah. It has a such a right. It has such a kind of a spooky a, a a spooky vibe and a and a kind of a sense of desolation that comes across so so well on that that, that picture.
1: Yeah. yeah, I was even reminded the way that the man by the billboard. Who later spies on them at night, and who's never really explained in the final version of the film? I, I know the script kind of clarifies a little bit more who hmm. he is, but it reminds me of the way the the figure in Todd Haynes's Safe appears in Landscape,
0: ah, uh, in that nice. very
1: creepy way, and that you know, it's the same uh, that same kind of time period of like the early to mid '90s independent film, yes, um, like these films that have this kind of eeriness that may or may not be informed by people like David Lynch, as far as taking the everyday kind of American or in this case, Canadian kind of suburban uh, setting and making them a little bit uncomfortable and a little bit disturbing.
2: Yes. That's a great, um, that's a great comparison. Safe is, safe is so much about like, but the idea of a person being put outside of um, uh, outside of like themselves and, and how do they fit in the world? Like, and, and whereas the adjuster is, is a person who seems to me anyway to be already outside and like observing and using that as an observation point. And yeah. when, and safe is like more along the lines of a person displaced and we ourselves are observing, but it also does some really interesting things versus like a film, film versus videotape and, and um, also assigning like what's some, uh, what, what is really the problem? You know, it's, it's working on this level of like, like angst in a way then in a level kind of most familiar, I guess, to like film fans is like the work of Michelangelo Antonioni. Yeah. And I, and in, um and in the adjuster, I think is the first example to me of like, of going, like getting to that level of expressing this kind of human sentiment through just like the visual, the terms of his visual compositions.
1: I'd agree with that. And it's, it's, Frustrating to me... Well, it's funny. The, he actually changes the aspect ratio from uh, between releases of <laughs> video editions of, of Adjuster because the um, the MGM US DVD is in the uh, 2.35 to 1 aspect ratio and then he crops it slightly for the Canadian version. Hmm. Uh, and I don't know if it's like a Kubrick thing where he just didn't like the black bars so much or what the deal was. I, th- I think he felt like the two... I felt like it I think he felt like it was too extreme in terms of the style being too in your face with that film
0: because mm-hmm. it is
1: the most uh stylized a going film I think Um
2: I would beg to say like a, a film that's coming up will be like his kind of biggest stylistic triumph but it is definitely the one where his style comes to the fore I think
1: well, like well, I, what it. I mean I guess what I mean is that this style calls attention to itself Yes which, which, but would you say that there's an okay, well we can say if there's another one, I I I think I know which one you're referring to. Yeah. The, um so after the adjuster, and so what happened with the adjuster at the time was that much in the way um Heaven's Gate kind of took down United Artists uh United Artists in the early eighties, the um I don't know if this is talked about quite as much, but Woody Allen's Shadows and Fog was one of the um, kind of hobbled Orion studios in a big way. Oh, okay. And uh, that actually, the uh, Orion was, I don't know if they went out of business around the time of the adjuster. I know that they were in real dire straits. Mm -hmm. And um, so that film, which was, I think, intended to be his uh, real breakthrough film, uh, it kind of, it did not really find the right distribution pattern to get noticed and i think that it's a shame because sometimes wonder if that would be a bigger cult film today had it not been something that only fans of Agoyan's later films would backtrack to if more people i mean it had people see it at the time but i think that uh not not on the level of something like exotica
2: yeah that's right like the definitely people should go and like give the adjuster a look it is um uh and uh, i mean it's it's a very very um uh fascinating uh well dark comedy then then and that that takes people to some really interesting uh novel places that few films like uh hit in today
1: yeah i think um so after after the adjuster uh, he made a film for Canadian television called Gross Misconduct, The Life of Brian Spencer. Have you seen this?
2: I, I have not, or I, I've not even heard that many details about it. So what is that like? So
1: it's it's about this real-life athlete who came from a, uh, a stern – like had a stern father, and uh, he and his brother were raised – and they were like troublemakers. He, he was a uh, – Brian Spencer had like this very kind of uh, – brutish temper he was he was um kind of more from the sticks and so when he got involved in professional hockey he kind of developed a reputation as someone that is likely to get into a fight who's was like a real macho kind of he-man and i guess because there's a certain element to hockey and hockey fans that like that kind of brutish spectacle he became kind of a, a celebrity um when he was about to appear in this very uh televised event um, uh, I forget the, the the total circumstance, but it, his father was so proud and really wanted to see his son on television and when he found out that uh, that television channel like in his in his part of Canada wasn't going to broadcast that they were going to broadcast a different game, he went down with a gun to the television station to demand that his son's game be aired and uh, was killed in a uh, scuffle with the police. Um, So it has this kind of true crime melodrama uh, story to it. And and the way that it's told, it's going plays with form in a way that is like kind of adventurous for, you know, it's still a kind of standard TV movie to my mind. I mean, I don't think it really kind of, I think it's more interesting in theory, and it's not—it's not unengaging, but it's you know, it's made for television. It's the most Canadian feeling thing that I've seen of a going. Like, it feels yeah. very much like you know, one that's meant for Canadian viewers to appreciate the most. And I guess it probably was seen by more people uh, than many of the feature films, well, uh, just because it had a large television viewership. Uh huh. That's certainly like. It's I'm sorry. I was gonna say I don't think it ever came out commercially in the U.S., but you can find it on YouTube.
2: Oh, I see. Like, well, I was just gonna say, just gonna quip in that, like, well, certainly the um, emphasis on the urgency of watching a hockey game is something that uh,
1: American audiences are less familiar with. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. Uh, well, he then goes to. Um, I'm trying to think. I guess so. The adjuster won a prize. uh... That gave him some kind of money that could be uh, in, in ruples, and um, this kind of set him on the path towards making uh, a very personal kind of side project film called Calendar. And Calendar is really where he starts addressing um, not just our, his Armenian uh, heritage again, but maybe just socio political themes in general, and the real outside world start creeping in in a more overt way. Um, it's about a man and woman who uh, go to Armenia. They're both of Armenian origin. Uh, he's there to take photographs for uh, a calendar. And he, he's he has a kind of detachment from the entire experience. He's seeing it through the lens of his camera. He's, he's concerned with aesthetics and with the image. His wife uh, is there to translate uh with you know the what they have a they have a guide and she's there to translate and just kind of you know carry the bags and be the uh you know the cute assistant essentially and what happens is she and the and the guide start developing a a flirtation or a romance in front of in you know over the course of the trip and this is all kind of presented in the past tense. In the present tense, uh, this photographer is alone in Canada. His wife is no longer with him. And he is ritualistically kind of playing out these scenarios with women who are addressing a lover in a language he doesn't understand. Um, so it's, it, it plays with all the Egoian themes uh, in a very different way than the uh the jigsaw puzzle kind of melodrama uh, narratives of adjuster speaking parts family viewing um it's a, it feels like a really radical departure in some ways but a lot of his ideas uh a lot of the buried themes are still there uh it's my favorite of the of the goyan films and um i think i'm trying to think what it is that i see i think what i get from it is it almost feels kind of like the, <laughs> I don't know how really dark, particularly, but almost like like the, the cinephiles' fear of of oneself, like the the idea of having that kind of detachment from real visceral experience by seeing things through the prism of art or through the prism of uh, fiction. Um, I think I think in a way it feels like a self criticism of the earlier Agorian films, only because. That kind of analytical detachment and preoccupation with uh, with the image is shown as a character flaw in the character that Egoyen, uh through the circumstances of the shoot, was forced to play himself. And Arsene Kanjan, his real life wife, plays his wife. So I know he says that there were people that thought that it really was a recording of their own, uh, of the t- deterioration of their own marriage. Um, but it's a film that I find like it gets better every time I see it. The first time I saw it, I found parts of it. I, I think, you know, with a in with a the first time viewing, you're, you're sometimes having to put together all the pieces. And this one is definitely structured in a bold way that it's not immediately clear, certainly with the rituals with the women, why why it's playing out the way that it is. But on a second viewing, it's really clear uh, what the game is that he's playing. Uh, but I, I think it's... It's definitely a film I wish more people had seen, or will see. I, I don't know. Uh, what, so what was your first impressions of Calendar?
2: Oh, um, uh, I, was, um, I was lucky enough to, when I saw Calendar, I was already enough familiar with the kind of ideas that Egoyan was doing that mm-hmm. I, and I think any fan of Egoyan would have a field day with Calendar, because I kind of find Calendar is to Egoyan what, um, in many ways, what Vertigo is to Alfred Hitchcock. It's a uh, self-exam. It's a filmmaker who has these concerns that have like permeated all of his work, and he has um. Uh, and in this film, he's very much cr- examining it himself in a and criticizing itself in a very very personal way, and like n- and getting the audience kind of aware of his own le- uh, that that this is a filmmaker that is like that is questioning not just his own feelings on the subject but the various nature and value of the filmmaking that he does and it's also very very personal on the history that he um then on his own history and his own past of of like the, of the cultures that he's associated with and and it explores those angle too it's a, I maybe i think to me it's his most personal statement on multiple levels
1: yeah i think i mean that's really where i mean he he brings the armenian themes back in a in a more uh, overt way uh, with Ararat, but this is really, in a way, this is almost more universal because Armenia could be anything. I mean, it, it could be it could be any other other culture um, because it's the, the point is that the the average viewer is not going to know the language. They're going to be on the outside just as much as his character. They're going to be just observing body language and tone of voice, but not knowing the words. Um, it's I don't know. There's there's something there's just something kind of like loose looser about it. It also that um, in the way that the structure plays out, uh, I, I don't know. I just find it really, I, I find it a healthy uh, kind of Avenue, but you know, out before going back to Exotica, I think, I think Exotica benefits from him having made calendar in a way. It's like um, the way that so David Cronenberg uh, after Videodrome uh, made The Dead Zone, which had this more uh, emotional quality to the romance uh, side of it, that the uh, earlier Cronenberg films tended to be a little chillier. And I think when he then went back to do The Fly, that he he went back to his old kind of body horror concerns, but with like this kind of maybe expanded sensitivity towards like the human side of it. I think I think the Calendar might. You could make the argument that I think that he, uh, I think I think the emotional qualities of Exotica, I think, are they benefit from him having the experience of having kind of refreshed his batteries after maybe the more formal uh, and stylized Adjuster. Yes, yes, I find like I I I
2: think that's I think that's about right because like like uh, for me on the Adjuster, I find like it's a lot more of him. Looking at this from a more of a distant, like like a black dark comedy level, whereas I find Calendar just intensely personal, and um, and that level of 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 looking at a of such a serious and 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 very very heartfelt examination of you know what does it what does it mean on on the actions of the actions that we are witnessing people take. Um, and is something that really, really informs uh exotica and then it's also kind of the first movie where I think um it going and delivers a level of trust in the audience to go and say we're going we're I'm gonna depict something that you as an audience member are not going to be clear of what's exactly going on at the the first time you view it, but yeah. you but you i but he trusts that you'll have enough interest. And to just, and that you'll see some underlying structure and pattern that you'll want to follow, uh, that you'll want to follow along. And if you do, when you fall, and and upon following along, when you find why these recurring patterns are showing up, like it leads to some really, really, really interesting insights. Insights that necessarily you wouldn't get if, if it was a more straightforward kind of story, you know, there's, you get some extra value out of making the journey with them to try and figure these things out.
1: Yeah, I think that, um, I think that in terms of his critical profile, Calendar was also a breakthrough uh, among critics that maybe were a little bit suspicious of the, uh, the intellectual rituals and game playing of the earlier features, um, that this one was a lot more uh, emotionally raw, a little bit more naked than he tended to be. And I think that that won over a few of his detractors so that when Exotica comes along, this becomes the breakthrough. This becomes his biggest hit really up until the surprise success of Chloe. Um, this actually, I think, even made more money than The Sweet Hereafter, After, which I think tends to be the most celebrated film still in his uh, catalog. But uh, so Exotica, we started touching on that at the beginning. But so what do you see in in terms of uh tracing the body of work up to exotica what do you see him where do you see the advances
2: I oh guess? it is um well i find like exotica is just the pretty much the culmination of of egoyan's themes and ideas brought up to just a like transcendent moment of of film artistry like i think the way, like, the visuals that he was, that he had composed so well with the, um, adjuster, the, uh, concerns upon, like, real, hu- uh, the real human interactions and, and the, and the values that we assigned to it that, um, that had manifested itself throughout from, like, next, from next of kin onwards, the sense of place and belonging that he's had from next of kin, um, the level of observation, uh, that came from speaking parts and, um, and family viewing and just the extensive, like, the, the, ex- and the extensive cast. Like, it's kind of like you could almost say, maybe that it's almost like his Nashville in that, like, he has so many characters in Exotica and he treats all of their concerns and their, and um, their uh, problems in a fair and emphatic manner. And, and he ties all this with this just incredible visual rep- representation. It's like, to me, like, like, it it's able to the way it shows like the 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 convoluted workings of the human mind in like just the settings and the environment of the club exotica itself is just astounding to witness
1: yeah i would agree i think i think you could make the argument that this is his best film i i like i said i prefer calendar personally kind of sorta of, but i mean i would definitely not argue with anybody that puts this at the top. Huh. Um, it's. It, I think it's. I think it's. If, if calendar feels like almost kind of on the outside of the body of work in a way, then it, it, just among the proper films, uh, Exotica feels like what he's been working towards from Next of Kin onward. Like it feels like the culmination of of uh, everything, in, in, in the way that it's cast with. A lot of the the same well it's not Gabriel Rose, but it has almost everybody else that you kind of associate with the early films, but it also introduces some of the best actors uh Bruce greenwood uh, especially uh, yes. and um uh the uh Sarah paul um, and uh who else was the other one there's one other person i'm I'm forgetting An- uh, An-
2: Ansari Karjan, obviously in a major role a major role
1: yeah, yeah and even uh McKellar? T- yeah, Don McKellar. We didn't mention him really yet, but he was supposed to play the uh, the lead in Calendar before uh and just found his own voice was too embedded in the soundtrack that they got when uh, recording the initial footage. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, and actually, Maury Chicken was supposed to uh, at one point was kind of thought to play the Francis character that Bruce Greenwood did, and that would give it a much different feeling. Oh, yes, um, to have someone who's not as conventionally handsome uh give it a more sad quality i think Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but um, i mean this you know this goes back to technology and the way you know it records memories the way that uh it's also interesting in the way that it's the first one that really treats race in any kind of overt way although it's 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 barely commented on but the way you learn that his his uh his dead wife and child were black and the way that you realize that his brother lives in this black neighborhood with this uh, South Africa rights kind of T-shirt, and mm-hmm. uh, it's it's so it's so subliminal. Let me ask you this: that brother says um, something about him, kind of uh, telling how how Francis would tell himself things to. Uh, he convinced himself of certain things. Right. Do you do you feel like any part of his own story as we the viewer come to understand it is false or is it, is it a fantasy or imagination?
2: Um that his uh, that like that we as we're viewing it we are not meant to necessarily believe it or take it at face value?
1: Yeah, like his his, his story, do we do you do you feel like um do you feel like that could be something that is subjective and he's an unreliable source of information about himself?
2: Oh, well, for me, like, um, one of the things I just find amazing about it is that, is, is that, like, I don't find that, I don't find that sensibility about it at all. Like, and in fact, even if he, in, in fact, one of the things, the points the movie tries to make is that, like, um, is that it is absolutely and completely real to, to him and, like, and that, the, and that that level of and that the that pain and grief that he feels is absolutely real and just it's just that like it's a very strange weird world that we have where this is the best way that he has found that he can express it
1: but yeah, I guess, I guess I'm a little backwards in, in getting to the plot of Exotica after we've already kind of dived into discussing it, but just, just, I guess without, uh, I guess for people that don't know, it's about, it's about a man who's going through this kind of unusual grieving process by going to a strip club and getting these lap dances from a woman who has her own reasons for wanting to give those lap dances to him, uh, and the kind of, it all it also involves a man who traffics in, uh, like a, like a pet store, like like a smuggling operation within a pet store, and that ties in to the man who goes to the strip club. Their stories, and then everyone kind of around that strip club. It all kind of ties together in this kind of complex way. But it's 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 them dealing with various forms of mourning. Um, so it's for a film that is kind of sold on the erotic content. It's really. It's really focused on grief just as much as the sweet hereafter is, for certain.
2: Mm-hmm. And right, and then like also key on the um, in the strip club is that there is a there is a DJ who goes and announces the dancers and uh, and the owner of the strip club is uh, is a woman who is pregnant. Um, and they view the um, they view what's going on and survey people um through a um uh, uh through a series of like almost labyrinth underground tunnels that like have one-way mirrors that look that look in on the um the what's going on in the strip club.
1: Yeah, I was gonna say you could even visually you could tie that back even to the way the young man observes the video therapy in Next of Kin. Oh. And uh, I don't know if you did you trace much I know you saw a peep show recently with the with the no touching. Did you uh Right. Did you did you see any uh, harbingers of Exotica in that? <laughs> oh, like that is it's kind of it's it's kind of funny on
2: the on the Peep Show, right? The idea, like the um yeah the idea of of no touching, and then also what's real versus like what's real versus what's being what versus what's being viewed, you know? Like there's a really really potent early early um uh, shot in Exotica where they're looking where two customs people are looking at a um. Uh, uh, looking at a character, looking at a person being like investigated by them, as he just arrived from an airport, I believe, and they're looking at him from a one-way mirror. And one character says to one of the customs officers, says to the other, like because he's being trained, he says, "Well, you have to look at this person and really judge what what got him to this place. Oh, uh, where where is he? What really drives him? What moves him? And that spirit of like that spirit of observation." versus of of what's being viewed versus what's versus what's real to people and how they how they try to square the two things is um is something that exotica brings across incredibly through like the story the way the the plot like the way the plot has a it has a twisted plot but not in a shamalan way which where like the twist reveals everything and everything becomes clear like it for one thing it's continuous Throughout the story, you're given more information, and each information just shades the characters and their situations in a in a, in new
1: and in fascinating ways. While well, I would go ahead, oh, sorry, I'm oh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Uh, what I was going to say is that we mentioned how this kind of uh, got attention in the wake of, of Pulp Fiction, but this feels like a lot less like a show off. Um, I, I love Pulp Fiction, but it's it, that that also that feels like it's a. Um, like a, a young hotshot showing off how he can twist up his his stories in a very uh, unorthodox way. Exotic it feels like it's more innate in the material that it has to be told that way. Yes,
2: exactly, absolutely. Like the care the the amount the events that happen in the film like have like led to such like grief and pain for the characters that that we are put in a. We are put in a situation through the way the film, like, bends time and, and gives us these different elements that we're, as for, when we view it the first time, that we're not, that we're, find difficulty placing. But I think in the, uh, by following through on that, we kind of understand, we understand why the main characters behave the way they do because we ourselves are put in a twisted, weird journey along with them, at least for that, the time period that we're watching the film
1: with them. Do you, um, I'm trying to think. So on the notions, it's funny, I didn't really expect to bring this up so much, but back to the notion of incest. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you read, how do you read the motivations for the uh, Mia Kirshner character, what she's getting from that ritual that they play out in Exotica? Do you see it as, I mean, I think it's kind of intimated that she's coming from a broken home, but whether or not there was sexual abuse or not, it's kind of left open to the viewer. But there is a sexualized father figure kind of thing happening with her. How do you how do you read her motivation? Well, that's like
2: um wow. Well, that ties in. I mean, that kind of ties into me about like one of the um uh, uh like uh, a statement that was said in um uh, uh Renoir's film, like The Rules of the Game. Which um, mm-hmm. which I just put a little bit above exotic in terms of one of the greatest films of all time, and, and oh, yeah. part of and part of the reason I, I I put it in these in this really high placement is because like rules of the game like show depicts those events in so in in so many different styles you know as a drama a melodrama a farce a tragedy and what have you and there's a moment where a character like looks at all the events that had happened and by way of trying to explain he says everyone has their reasons and that interaction between um the the francis character and mia Kirshner's character is such a great 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 example because she in she is getting something out out from him in a manner that like in a manner that comes from like the the kind of the last sequence of the movie it's it's like, in in that particular way, when you describe, like, the broken environment where you suspect that something, like, like sexual had gone amiss. Like, she had sublimated these feelings, and so she needs, feels, she feels just as much of a need to respond to Francis's character in this kind of, like, in this kind, in the way of a stripper, and he needs to respond to her in this kind of protective way. But for totally different reasons, they managed to have um, a kind of very interesting symbiotic relationship that is just the way that these two broken individuals have found a way to relate. But the the way they relate to each other is quite different.
1: This is maybe, I don't know if this constitutes spoiler territory, but um, just in case you haven't seen Exotica, you know... um, Fast forward a little bit, but uh, why do you think he touches her when Elias Cortes's character suggests that he does? What do you think motivates him to actually uh, follow through with that?
2: I think what motivates him to I think what motivates him to do that is brought about by the like like in the final scene we see of them together. Like you see him, you see Francis looking back as she descends into one of the most menacing like houses <laughs> this side of the Amityville horror. And yet, uh, it yes, creepy, exactly. Yeah. And oh, and I mean, by the way, that just that, that image, it manages to be creepy and menacing and, 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 and enroaching, encroaching, all while being sunny. Like, it's just such a just a triumph of one image in a film that has many such amazing moments. And um, and the touching is of a sense that he wishes he could save someone, but ha- but realizes he has not. And the, the, the sense of touching is the sense that, like, he wants to break through the reality that he finds so painful to acknowledge. So, like, he is aware that this is a rule, you know, in the same way that he realizes that his family tragedy, he can't get back. And it, th- I think that's his attempt to break the rules.
1: It's funny, that last shot, this is gonna sound like maybe the most bizarre thing to reference, but what reminded me of the last time I watched it is the last shot of The Silence of the Lambs, where ah. Hannibal Lecter walks into the crowd and disappears and just holds on that crowd, the same way she walks through that door. And it's like this sunny, happy Americana kind of image, but you know there's nothing but darkness. Right. That is the result of that of that passage into the frame, and it's no longer observing characters; it's just observing this location. Mm-hmm. That's uh, right. In the sunshine, and it should be to something totally ordinary. But we know, you know, certainly in, you know, in sounds of Lambs, you know, you know, it's a killer on the list. Right. But like, in, you know, in Exotica, it's um, you know that you know there's only trouble in that home. You know that there's only trouble ahead for Francis. If there's there's no uh, there's no happy resolution for those characters, and I don't know. It's funny that ending, how they resolve the the ending with with Francis and with the Leiskateas character. Do you, do you feel like that that's, that that's like that they've re- reached a satisfying kind of moment of reconciliation, or do you? I know I've read one piece that I kind of almost agree with that. Um, I think it was in Jonathan Romney's book on Adam Mcgoyan that uh, there's also a sense that it's a filmmaker deliberately confounding expectations for the climax of a film like that that you have a gun drawn or you have you have the the promise of a violent catharsis and you're denied it well you like that it's that it's like a chess player deliberately making an unorthodox move just to keep you and people like you know like like interested in the
0: game.
2: Oh, it's like well, I mean, right? It's it's um uh, the greatest example of like Chekhov's misdirection, I think, in in a film. Honestly, like it's because you do get a. I mean, I at least definitely get a catharsis
1: out of it, but it's
2: not the catharsis we're expecting.
1: <laughs> right. Well, yeah, I I would agree with that. I'm not I'm not trying to suggest that it isn't doesn't have a uh, an emotional uh, cathartic kind of feeling. It just it's not what it's not how a studio hollywood film would would end. That oh
2: definitely oh definitely not. I mean that blew me when I when I saw what happened that blew me away how how like because he because what he wants to I mean because what he wants to do is like and honestly that's kind of a in a weird way maybe is a really one of the positive message out of a film that was not really trafficking in a lot of positive positive message up to up to that point the idea is is that you are expecting that france is going to have a destructive act but instead it's just an ultimate act of like recognition of another person's suffering and th- yeah. and that so what you think is going to be like what you think is going to be a level of 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 just of destruction and 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 desolation instead becomes this just a- amazing rush of sentiment from a completely unexpected direction and it and also leads to like just just on the visual sense when we're talking about how that house at the end has a menace when they do the flat when they do particular flashbacks to a green field that has this like irish level of of incredibly strong hues to it when you finally see yeah. what what comes across that way is that's just an amazing moment.
1: And that, that field and that search party is echoed in, uh, in a later film that we'll get to. Mm -hmm. Um, but what I was going to say is, so after Exotica comes out, Exotica is handled by Miramax and put through their, you know, their marketing machine. And they get this film pretty far out into, uh, into the American theaters. And it ends up being a critical and commercial success. Um, What comes next? So initially, he almost went the Hollywood route then. Um, He got involved in a project called, I want to say it's called Dead Sleep. Uh, Susan Sarandon, I think, was kind of rumored to maybe be involved in it. It was for Warner Brothers. And this could have been where the Egoian lurid thriller chapter started. Uh, But he backed away from it. Uh, He um, went on to do. The Sweet Hereafter instead, which is probably for a lot of people his most recognized title. And I know that since we are going from Exotica, what he has said in a way to link the two films is he said that um, the ending of Exotica has this this young girl in this uh, domestic situation that is troubled and kind of unclear. Uh, we follow her going up to that door. Sweet Hereafter is what's on the other side of that door. <laughs> That it's that it's now taking the teenage girl story in that kind of uh, disturbing, disturbing domestic, domestic situation, and uh, elaborating yeah, elaborating some of the themes of, uh, of of loss and that that you find in Exotica, but uh, through the Russell Banks story, uh, the, the the novel The Sweet Hereafter. Uh, what was your first impression of this film when you saw it?
2: Uh, I was my my expression of it was just I mean honestly it was um pure joy in a sense not that's not commenting on the film experience but for me i was so uh, astounded by exotica's achievement that when i view that like to see um his themes presented in a much more accessible way but without like but without like sacrificing any of the emotional like depths that he plumbed in exotica was like uh, just made me just, uh, uh, incredibly happy because it got this sense of like, yes, finally a general, a general audiences will get a chance to see, like, um, uh, uh, like what Egoian stuff is all about without having, like, any of the, the luridness, like, turn people away.
1: Well, it's funny because that's true in that you know, one ticket for the sweet hereafter, a story about families dealing with tragedy is a lot different than one ticket for exotica, you know, which has a stripper on the poster and that's right. Sounds like, you know, sounds like you're going to uh, an erotic film. I would say though, that, I mean, the, uh, the, the, there's more disturbing sexuality to the sweet hereafter than there is to exotica. Um, and I think that that kind of confounded people at the time that weren't prepared for the, uh, the way incest is depicted. um, It's, Hmm. I think, I think that, and you know the scene I'm talking about, which is, is a deliberately romantic, exaggerated way to depict it. it to the point where I think the first time I watched it, I thought to myself, wait, I thought that was the dad. Maybe I misunderstood. Right. Because the way he's first introduced, he could just be. An older guy that she's dating you know he's got long hair she's playing some you know uh folk rock and it could just be but then she refers to him as dad and like oh okay so that's that's the relationship but then when they have this kind of like candlelit interlude in a barn and it's it's done in a very lush kind of way i know the intellectual reasons behind why he does that but i think that that's a curveball that people really weren't prepared for when the film came out. Mm-hmm. Would you agree with that?
2: Um uh, yeah, it's definitely some element that is is it to me it's kind of like um it kind of like runs counter to what a lot of, of the Sweet Hereafter is is trying to do. To to I, I wouldn't go so far as to say it's gratuitous, but it is I wouldn't an,
1: either I wouldn't either
2: but it isn't but it is an element that it is an element that doesn't quite flow with everything together the same way all the pieces I find an exotic up all work together, like no matter how disparate their, their origin point would be. Um, uh, like, and although like, I think, I think it as a showcase for the, the amazing uh, uh, characterization that Sarah Polly's character brings out, you know, and by like at a climactic scene near the end, you can see there's a very deliberate, their, their actions are informed by, a lot of these conflicting feelings that she brought about by being in this, having this unusual relation and a relationship with her father.
1: Funny. I mean for me I think the Sweet Year After I loved it at the time that it came out and having lived with it for how many years has it been now? That was what ninety seven, ninety eight? So it's been you know, I've had I, I think now looking back at the body of work, I find this to be where uh, I I still really like it, but I think that I think that for me the great years end with exotica and everything else that follows there's not an uninteresting film among them but i don't i don't i don't appreciate them in quite the same way with maybe one exception hmm. um and, I, and i'm trying to think of why because i watched this week after again recently thinking like that was my impression that this is where this is where he's i don't know if, if it's there's a certain kind of um that that I find the uh, the Pied Piper uh, theme a little bit kind of shoehorned in, or if I find the way that the uh, the exposition on the plane, or actually the whole way that that daughter, uh, the Zoe uh, side of uh, the in home story is handled, it feels a little bit more melodramatic to me in a self conscious way than everything that happens in the town itself uh, outside of the flashback with the child in the, uh, after the spider bite, which I think is brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there's some, some of that framing material feels a little awkward to me. Um, but I think that everything that happens in the heart of the town is still, you know, top tier Uruguayan.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so it's, it's not a film that I think, um, is not a good film. Like, I think it is a good film, but I think that this is where I have maybe more, uh, more of a qualified praise for it than everything before it. Whereas, uh, you know, I think that next of kin through exotica, I don't think there's any that I wouldn't rate very highly. Um, Hmm.
2: Like I, I rated like, I mean, I put it as just, um, uh, like, just maybe one level like below um uh eg- below exotica, I mean because I think that some of those elements that he was were more prevalent through his earlier work uh were uh, have been like a little bit flattened, like his notion upon different levels of observation, for example, is not yeah. really manifest as much, but I found it like in terms of trying to take this story and first and be truthful, I don't know if it was necessarily egoian knows or cares about having a general audience in mind but i have found it like more accessible in, in for regardless and but then also in trying to stay true to russell banks is uh i think russ he is the author of the um, yeah. the sweet Hereafter. Yes. after and and i think like he um he expanded on some of his uh, on some of his elements in a in a in a really great way like it's a, it is his most i think it's his most like um it may be one of his most expansive visually, for one thing, like the way he uses the wintry landscape to enhance the isolation of, of the people of the town, is um and and combines it with how contrasted so interestingly with Ian Holmes' character and how he seems to always be in enclosed spaces,
0: yeah, you know, like like yeah.
2: like his biggest conf- his biggest confession is like inside an, an airplane after all, right, and um uh, and then also the way he uses like. Like Ian Holm is like a kind of a multifaceted adjuster in a way, right? He's trying to make, he's trying to make an adjustment, a rectification for people in this town, but obviously for his, obviously for his own reasons. And, and it also explores, and also explores in a social component that Exotica was also trafficking in, in the way people, in, it's sort of a criticism, the way people assign the value on their, an emotional value, a cathartic value to money. To property. Oh, yeah. The idea that, like, the idea that society can remunerate you, can get, can, can, um, co- compensate for the things you feel and the things that you want. Um, uh, and how, how, how people, how that could be valid or how that could fall short, right? Like, just to jump back to Exotica really briefly, one of the interesting component, interesting kind of relationships comes from a guy who, like, gets opera tickets. And just solicits people to watch an opera with them by, by saying, uh, a person couldn't make it, you know? It's the idea that like an exchange comes in that's a monetary thing and it becomes an emotional thing or, or even, even if it resolves to a sexual thing, it's a, it's something that, it's a, the, something interesting gets exchanged from there, you know? And I think it's looking at that in a, in a level on pain and suffering and grief. But how can, how can society, how can the rules that society sets up, like, go and really compensate for all such a traumatic act?
1: I would, I would agree with all that. I think that it's, um, yeah, I, I think. Gosh, I'm trying to think if there's anything further I have to add on that one. I, I mean, beyond just the the curio trivia that there was another Russell Banks uh, adaptation done around that same time with the same DP, Paul Sorosi shot Paul Schrader's adaptation of uh, Affliction. Oh, wow. Uh, also okay. around that time. And I think that in terms of like uh, wintry melodramas of familial tension and... Uh, yes. Th- 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 I prefer... I prefer affliction uh but i i i do i you know i mean the Sweet hereafter I, I i think it's an interesting film and it's funny to me that that's the one that is one of the most widely seen because it doesn't feel if it, well it i don't know in a way it it points towards something like arrow rat but it feels like very different animal to me than the earlier films, but
2: um, mm-hmm. yeah, like he's right. His, his some of his some of his concerns were have, had did like fall did like sort of fall by the wayside. Like apart from the incestuous angle, for example, the idea of like weird uh, like of weird experiences are made like emphatic is not that prevalent in, in Sweet Hereafter that much.
1: Well, and, it's it's, uh, it's also the, the, this is not a word I think we've used yet, but denial is a, is a big theme in a Goyan. uh and the way that the characters are dealing with grief in the sweet hereafter uh, there's a certain element of denial that they want to believe you know that it wasn't an accident that someone has to ha- someone has to pay monetarily for it like there's there's people convincing themselves of something right uh, you know re- kind of rechanneling their grief and they're being manipulated to rechannel their grief by an outsider um Mm-hmm. Just in terms of Agoyan's own filmmaking career, this is also where the uh, the cachet that Exotica got him. Uh, Ian Holm, uh, the first uh, big actor from outside his troupe to join the ranks, and it's funny because the, the um, you have a lot of uh, instances of this going forward where he brings in big actors. They're almost always. I don't want to say, what was that, but A lot of them are like European uh, act, male actors, not always the um, Hollywood stars, although he does have one or two of those coming up. But, um, you know, the next film would be Bob Hoskins, and then he had work with John Hurt in the um, uh, Craps Last Tape, and he brings in Charles Aznavour uh, for uh, Ararat. Um But th- this is where he has a big actor to play with, you know, in his, in his, uh, in his games. And it's, it's a really interesting performance uh, from Ian Holm. I, I think it might be one of the ones he's best remembered for at the end of the day, because he hasn't really had, I, I think of him more as a, uh, I, I know he's been in movies for a long time, but he might have just more of a uh, uh, career in television stage mm-hmm. than, uh, than, than an A-list movie star. Although I think he got an Oscar nomination for the sweet year after, I don't know that it led to more, High-profile parts in too many big American films.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, how do you how do you like his performance, and how do you think it fits for you with um, uh, Igoian's uh, regular crew?
1: I think he fits perfectly. I think he. Um, it's funny cause you. I feel like there's a creeping tendency towards naturalism around this time that they become they become progressively less like the way this is still him writing the scripts. Uh, but he 's adapting someone else 's dialogue, so it 's a little bit less mannered than what comes before and um I think as someone that follows writer directors pretty avidly at times, I sometimes get a little bit frustrated not frustrated that 's not the right word but i get i miss i miss it when writer directors stop self generating the material and maybe they run out of things that they Need to say, um, you know, there's always the risk of becoming self-parody, uh, and you, we could probably name directors that fall into that trap. But the, uh, you know, this is where he starts adapting outside novels. Felicia's Journey, the next film, is also uh, it, it's even further out. It's taking the whole story over to uh, to Ireland and the UK, um, and then you have things coming up later like uh, Chloe or Devil's Knot or uh remember that are that are outside writers. Um so he's still imposing his themes and perspective on the material, but the same way when Cronenberg started adapting other people's work around the time of um really around I guess the time of I guess the dead zone really as far as as how far it goes back um but even someone like Spike Lee like it's always more interesting to me when Spike Lee's directing one of his scripts however madcap they can get than when he's playing within the rules of someone else's screenplay same with Soderbergh um you know there's there's something i miss a little bit when they become strictly uh directors of other people's material
2: right like um uh, right i mean i guess you uh, uh, you have to follow whichever muse that uh, like is calling to you at a certain time and um uh, uh, i could only hope that like igoyan's um after hours is um uh, on the horizon or his <laughs> or even or even his Schizopolis. um yeah. like after all like uh, wasn't the uh, didn't like scorsese spend his own like uh, 40 days and nights in the wilderness just trying to get the uh, um the uh, last temptation of christ off the ground right and like like you can't get more of an adaptation than that i guess and, um uh, and then it turns out that like he did After Hours and that revitalized his, that helped revitalize his career.
1: Yeah. Well, After Hours, though, he's not, the thing with Scorsese, Scorsese never, he did not generate that material. He was a last minute replacement for Tim Burton. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that, um, I think only a handful really have his direct input on the screenplay, things like uh, Goodfellas, um, that, you know, Mean Streets, things that come from his, uh, his perspective in the streets. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. It's it's funny with someone like a Goyan just because I know that he was concerned about falling into the trap of repeating himself also, which is why things like Felicia's Journey or later Chloe make sense on paper. Mm-hmm. Um, Felicia's Journey is, to my mind, quite a departure. Um, and not just because, Arsene kind of shot aside, it has none of the familiar faces in the cast that you associate with uh, an Adam Ogoyan film. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's another one dominated by uh, a, a new guest star, uh, Bob Hoskins in this case. Right. Um, what's your, what's your feeling about this one? Cause I know that this one is kind of where he starts losing some people mm-hmm. uh, because it, it is kind of not what they were expecting. I remember seeing it opening night at, I want to say midnight um i saw it in it was 1999 it opened the same day as i want to say it opened the same day as kevin smith's dogma but maybe my memory is funny hmm. on that we went to go see dogma looking for protesters uh in the theater that <laughs> afternoon and then and then at the angelica in new york uh, that night for felicia's journey um okay but so what was your first reaction to felicia's journey
2: Um, yeah, my first reaction of Felicia's was, um, was admittedly like a little bit of a disappointment because I kind of felt like the material was, uh, like very, it it didn't resonate in so many different ways the way his previous two had. Like, like, like I find like Sweet Hereafter and Exotica, like just have like, reveal endless things the more i see them you know and 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 felicia seemed to be a, a lot more of a straightforward in the kind of ideas that it was presenting um and like and there was um it, it didn't have the level of where like details were getting revealed throughout the way that uh the way that i find um uh the last two movies were like so refreshing it's like basically as events happen you're made you're made aware of them <laughs> and uh, and his the treatment of like the main character and and his his mother in that footage was um weird but not in a way not in a way where the weirdness connected with with the character at least to me
1: yeah i think that the the uh like the saturated colors of those kind of flashback sequences i think it's useful to uh to call out how subjective they are in a way like visually but it also it's like a very unpleasant look to me aesthetically that I associate very much with like a certain kind of like 90s independent film.
0: oh okay
1: <laughs> but the uh it, I actually kind of do like Felicia's Journey for what it is it's it's definitely a film I think it reminds me more of like Claude Chabral or like like films that are like meditations on the thriller than actual thrillers <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, that I think to sell it as a, uh, a variant of psycho with Bob Hoskins it only is going to disappoint anyone that goes to it with that kind of expectation. Um, and I actually think that it might, I don't know, the, the way, the way that his themes are injected back into this one, it actually feels more a than, uh sweet hereafter does on some level in terms of just the 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 way certain themes are explored the the way you know loss and memory and ritual and video kind of swim together mm-hmm. that it's uh it, it but it, but grafted onto some clearly someone else's story and uh the locations it, it's also again another story of culture clash although it's not it doesn't seem to be like the, at the center of the story, but if you go back to it, you're watching the, you know, the, um, the Ireland uh, versus the UK, like that kind of tension. Um, Cause it's often at times like, you know, Armenia, you know, seems to be at the <laughs> the heart of that, of the tensions or like, a, or like a middle Eastern kind of tension. This is a, uh, this is something that comes from the novel, but it, it ties into his uh, larger sociopolitical concerns that kind of get, Further uh, examined in the next film, Error Rat, which is self-generated material. But uh, I think, and I don't know if you knew that the uh, those videos of the girls in the car, like those, became used in some kind of uh, installation work that he did. Um, something to do with Hitchcock. I'm, I'm drawing a blank on the name of it, but they were actually repurposed for something, uh, a project outside of Felicia's Journey. Oh, um, oh, interesting. I didn't know that. Hm. Yeah, I I only knew that I only learned that recently, but
2: um yeah, like like for what let me just to give me like uh, my my feeling on on the the Hoskins character is that like ironically, the thing that like maybe dooms him a little to me is that he's too effective at playing a a brutish killer. Like kind of it becomes less of a thriller because he's so um he's so menacing that you just that I almost Feel like I'm I'm in a Michael Hankey kind of film that like effectively that like the girl is doomed <laughs> and there's and there's pretty and there's no way out and I'm just watching like a, a like a cat play with a wounded mouse. Uh, that was a feeling I had during it.
1: That's well, that's interesting that you bring up Hanke because it, again like Funny Games, it has like this disruptive self-reflexive moment when he brings the. Uh, the the uh, the drug beverage yeah. up the stairs in a way that deliberately evokes uh, suspicion. Uh, it mm-hmm. echoes a famous shot with Cary uh, Grant from that film. Right. Uh, he he turns and makes an expression to the camera. Yes. Um, yes. In a way that um, you know it breaks it breaks the fourth wall just as much as the the killers being able to rewind the film in funny games. That's right.
2: That's right. And, and, and that's my, that's actually my least favorite thing of Felicia's journey on there because, because uh, Hoskins gives an expression to his face that shows, Oh my God, this guy is a horrible, brutal killer. But I know that (laughs) through the
1: movie. So See, to I me- oh, I, I I don't get that impression. But I get the fact that it's a very overt wink. Like yes, you are watching a thriller.
2: <laughs> oh okay. No, I was I I the way I came across it was just that like it was a level where like Agoyan up to that point from all the films I had seen uh, like until I saw Felicia's Journey was such a self assured filmmaker and there to me I saw him falter. I saw him like. Look at, uh, present this as like, okay, maybe Bob Hoskins, you know, cooking and acting friendly towards Felicia. I don't want people to get the wrong impression. He's actually a horrible guy. <laughs> and to which like, it's like, no, he lost, to me it was like he lost faith in his own material at that moment.
1: Yeah, I guess, I, I mean, I can see that reading of it. I, I think that there's something about how slack the pacing is for that film that is very unthriller like. That it's kind of caught up in this new location. And in a way, um, you could draw comparisons. I think some probably have to, um, like when Antonioni left Italy to do Blow Up in England, uh, Hmm. for example, uh, or even Cronenberg going there for Spider. Um, You have a sense of like someone so rooted in, you know, going to so rooted in Toronto that having new. Uh, this is to explore. I think there's a certain um, just way of photographing that location that I think he might be kind of caught up in just the atmosphere of of the surroundings a little bit. And it's also the first time he's working with a budget that big. So something like the uh, the house that Hoskins live in lives in is a is a soundstage, and it's so designed. Um, and and so on. Um, see, see, the thing is with that film is like there's so much that is overtly unrealistic about it um i mean that this is somebody that like is such a creature of the past that he's listening to old 1950s recordings and watching old uh you know 1960s cooking shows ritualistically um and yet he's sophisticated enough to have hidden cameras and have all this kind of technology mm-hmm. um, but is that you know, is that meant to be treated as realistic, or is it, or, or is any of it meant to be kind of received as his fantasy? I mean, we never even see him hurt anybody outside of like threaten the girls. I mean, could he even not be a killer? I mean, could he just be in denial? It's ambiguous. You don't really see him perpetrate any real violence until uh, he gets to drugging Felicia.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I, so it, yeah, on, I, on, the, on the level of just a thriller, it almost feels like it's it's someone trying out thriller clothes or something like, like it, it it feels like, I mean, he doesn't really make a film that feels satisfying as a genre movie until later. Um, This just feels like, I don't know. I mean, what, what themes is he really trying to tackle? I mean, it's, I I think you have to either approach it just as an intellectual exercise or you won't get anything out of it because Mm -hmm. I think as a thriller, it just is too inert. Uh, for most of it,
2: right, right. That's I mean, like I, I, you raised a really, really great issue with the idea of like um uh, that it's that it's ex- that it's exploring the idea of the of, of the thriller and um it also and how much how much of it are you expected to like buy as an audience member? And honestly, I kind of think if there's one thing that you can like um uh, uh one way that dooms the movie or knocks it down a peg, it's Hoskins. Not because of his acting. I think his acting is just tremendous. It's just—it's not enough to me to overwhelm the fact that he has a—he has a a, a big brutish presence that he gives off through his very form. You know, it 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 makes me think like, boy, you know, if he was the if he was Norman Bates in Psycho, that movie would never ever work because you need to have somebody who inherently comes across that like you couldn't possibly be a threat.
1: Yeah. Well, and actually, it's funny because in a way, it points towards. What I think maybe the most problematic area uh, of the captive is is that the um, the pedophile villain in that film is is so uh, I guess clearly delineated as a villain, and the Bob Hoskins character I mean is kind of in a long line of like kind of like effete English killers. I mean, going back to things like Peeping Tom, that uh, or you know, or certainly with with the mother complex of someone like Norman Bates, you know that. I don't know if it feels too stock. Um, like it's something that is surprisingly conventional coming from a Goyan, but I mean, that's also the source material.
2: Um, I think it's, yeah, I honestly, if you had somebody like the, the, the comparison I'd like to make is like, you compare it with what Mary Heron did with, and Christian Bale put together with American psycho. I yeah. mean, because his, and that's a similar situation where you as an audience member don't know exactly what, Happened. It might be. It might be that something. It that these horrible events had come about, or they were all in his head. But Christian Bale is able to live on both sides of that equation. You know, like you, you when he's when he's like uh, upset near the end of the movie, you can you can like feel for him and that in that way. And I mean, and Hoskins. I mean, I can't, the guy from Long Good Friday. Could could he be like uh, an effete guy who calls his actions into question, like? I don't think um uh, Egoin was able to surpass that kind of a task honestly
1: yeah and and that's a totally valid complaint with it. I think that when I look back at what I like about Felicia's journey, I think it establishes a time and place in a really beautiful way um, what happens within that time and place I guess is where, where where problems come but it's it's still an interesting film to me, even if I think that this is where it becomes apparent that um I don't know if I want to say like he's he's faltering, but it's, it becomes, maybe it becomes unclear as to where he needs to go. Uh, and so where he goes next is Ararat. And Ararat, have you seen this one? Or I know that you said you hadn't had a chance to see it for this show, but had you ever seen it?
2: I unfortunately, uh, and regrettably have not, because I kind of, I kind of find that like, it's, it's, to me, it has a particular kind of, interest from its from its absence in what I've seen because I I've seen that like Felicia's journey is still a part of like quote unquote old going to me and then his films afterwards seem to have of a different tone so I'm very curious as to like um uh, but uh, about the film and and what effect it could have had but I'm I am un, I'm ignorant about that myself unfortunately
1: well the thing right, so I'll just go lightly on what Ararat is so Ararat is exploring the Armenian genocide. Uh, But it's, it's um, the way it's going about it. So Egoyan I guess, wanted to hold off on making a film about this until he found his own way in to explore that territory. And the way that he does it is it's about, it's about a filmmaker making a kind of, Schindler's List-style historical war drama uh, about a particular massacre. Um, the director is played by Charles Aznavour, playing a character named uh, Edward Soroyan, which is the same name he has in uh, Shoot the Piano Player, the Truffaut film. Um, although I never see any writing never mentioning it, so I don't know <laughs> why that is. But anyway, so he um, he's making this film, um, The Armenian Genocide, and he... Uh, and his writer, played by Eric pagogoian, they come in contact with a woman played by Arsene kanjan who um has written a book on uh gorky the painter who uh as a child had been uh witness to this massacre um and they want to bring her on as a uh as a consultant kind of basically fact check and add you know basically like uh give their interpretation of historical events uh expert approval um she's dealing with her own internal um conflict because the uh his her her son is having a sexual relationship with her uh her late husband's daughter um and but I was a late husband. Yeah. Well, her, her lover, I forget if they were married, but like basically the, there's like an incestual kind of relationship here, although they're not, you know, the, the young lovers are not blood relations. Um, but it ultimately becomes a story about, uh, perspective and interpretation and the problems with telling that kind of story because of, uh, like the responsibility of like portraying the on film, like the way you have to alter the facts and even the value of whether or not it's necessary to kind of reopen old wounds is, 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 is brought up. Although I think a clearly on the side that we must remember repressing the facts is harmful, but it, it plays with the Armenian genocide in maybe a way that is too postmodern for some Armenians and at the same time, I know there was t- protests from Turkish audiences you know Turkish organizations because they felt like this uh was an was anti-Turk propaganda, so that I know Miramax were getting complaints um uh, even before the film had come out. So it had like both sides, it's the same way that like something like Spielberg's Munich, by playing kind of down the middle with like certain kind of uh Israeli-Palestinian tensions kind of made everybody upset. Uh, this had that a similar kind of effect, which agoyan I think, was in, intentionally trying to elicit a dialogue. Um, the problem is is that it's because the uh, the historical facts are not common knowledge the way that World War II, uh, for example, would be... Um, th- this is something I'm paraphrasing from, uh, from the Egoian book from Jonathan Romney. This is not my own insight, but it, it becomes a case where... A lot of the characters have to explain uh, so much of the historical events for the audience to understand what's going on that it becomes a little bit too talky and uh, like it's it, it's 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 a little bit too heavy on characters giving history lessons to one another <laughs> essentially, um, and that that becomes a problem in that it becomes like the ambiguities and the clever coded language of the earlier going kind of gives way to, um, to an earnest kind of righteous political kind of dialogue that it becomes, it, it's still kind of really um, it, it, it's a very complex structure. And I've only kind of like, I I'm only kind of skimming the surface of the design of it. Cause I don't, I mean, it's, I don't know how useful it is to describe it all in, in detail, but um it 's clearly a very personal film it 's dealing with a subject it's, but i mean it's kind of a, it's in a way it is like his schindler 's list and imagine if schindler 's list was a critically mixed reaction bomb what that would have done to Spielberg i mean it'd be the same kind of thing with in terms of a goyan 's own career. I think that it kind of i i mean it found some of an audience, but I know that it lost money uh at least in the u s it did and I think that that being kind of a personal statement and really kind of putting himself out there in terms of like political ideas in a way that the early films really do not tackle. I think that where the truth lies, the next film uh, is a kind of a, um, an intentional move towards kind of more impersonal territory, even though he wrote it, it's him adapting a Rupert Holmes novel. It's uh, it's dealing kind of with like a fictionalized version of Martin and Lewis uh, it's using big actors like Kevin Bacon. Uh, have you seen this one, Where the Truth Lies?
2: Oh yes, yes. Um. Uh. uh but uh, uh, before before we get into that, I'm very curious on. And when you're saying how dense uh, Ararat is, uh, makes me wonder because, like, it seems to me that the subject matter is very ripe for a lot of things that Goian has shown, like over the course of his career, to be interested in. Like, for example, the idea of like changing or acknowledging the truth. Um, and also, like um, it seems like the potential for like like videotaped or recorded um, events to be like reexamined is also pretty uh, could be pretty um, uh, rich subject on there. So I'm wondering how
1: how Igoyani is um, Ararat. Very, very much so. In in a way, it feels like until you get to adoration, like era and adoration are like to my to my take on it, it they feel like the valiant last stands of old Agoyan. <laughs> like they feel like the ones that come from him and have all of the same density of structure and you know multiple meanings and ambiguities and uh you know but and, and dealing but dealing with ethnic identities in a way that is kind of a departure from something like Speaking Parts or The Adjuster. Um, but they feel like... I don't know. I, I, I don't want to spoil error for you because you haven't seen it yet. But it's it's a film that has, like, different layers of, of reality, like you know, film within film, kind of uh, home video footage, uh, footage that does not seem to have an informed perspective. Um, it, it's... I think that the criticism that I've heard about it is that it you know, it takes a subject that really needs to be communicated articulate in an articulate way because people don't know this history and renders it obscure by a dizzying kind of narrative design. I don't, I think that if it's, if it's a failure, it's an interesting failure. So I actually don't know if I would even say it's not a success, but it is it is not the place to start with Agoyne. It's a pretty challenging film um, among his body work. I, I quite—I went into it knowing that a lot of his own critical supporters thought this one was a turkey. So I didn't even—I didn't even really go in with high expectations, even though it was Adam Agoyne. And I kind of always have liked it in a way. I mean, it's—it. I feel like—I feel like there's a certain kind of political righteousness to it that I find a little bit too strident for my taste, but it's also, it kind of calls that stridency into question in an interesting way. So it's, I don't know, it's more interesting in theory than something I return to for pleasure the way I do earlier going films. It's definitely an important work though. Uh, and it might be, I don't know, I, I might be underrating it because I, I think that there's a lot that's really interesting about it. It's just... I mean, you'll know when I when you see it what I'm <laughs> why I would throw those caveats out there. About.
2: Right, right. Well, it definitely sounds like uh, I, I regret now twice as much having not had a chance to uh, view it up before this. Uh... Uh, podcast I aim to rectify that as as soon as possible
0: and well, um it's,
1: well it's funny because we we both had the experience preparing for this of having DVDs of Ararat not work exactly. I wonder if there was a a mastering error
0: some <laughs> kind.
1: I had to buy another copy of it when when uh, buying it. Fortunately, well fortunately or unfortunately uh, Ararat was such a uh an unpopular film that uh, secondhand copies are quite affordable if you go
2: online. Uh, uh, oh, good, good to hear. And it, and it does like and from what you what you bring up, it does lead me to um uh, to see how like yeah, how if you didn't get a popular or critical uh, positive reaction from this uh from a film which sounds like it had dealt on subjects very very personal. Um, that like you would want to go in the dramatically in both senses of the word opposite direction with uh, where the truth lies, kind of yeah. like the um, uh, which is yeah a, a really nice look at I mean a really nice look at you know history and um uh, history and performance and um uh, identities like um uh, hidden and revealed um. Uh, but made like very very expressly you know like the I, I think the idea is like there's a, a newspaper reporter investigating
1: things in, in yeah. this one it's it's funny this one i mean this is where you start seeing a goyan um, like he's both still formally adventurous but going into increasingly lurid uh in a way that is uh, maybe commercial kind of territory um, and this one you know, famously ran into trouble with the ratings board because of the sexual content in it. And I think that going out with without a rating uh, kind of cut it off at the knees in terms of distribution. Mm-hmm. So I don't even know how widely seen it was in theaters. I saw it in theater. Um, and I, I think that... I mean, do you feel like this is a step towards more commercial territory, or do you see this... Because, it, again, it's another nonlinear story, which most of these have been, Um do you feel like this is a more accessible move for him?
2: Um, yes, I definitely do. Like it's be, um, and it's it's more accessible to me in the sense of like um, um, reduction. like there's there's just less things to there's just less things to consider in where the truth lies. You just have a central mystery and the the jumps across time are basically out to like um, uh, like in illuminate what's what's going on in that mystery. But it doesn't expand in terms of like, in terms of like looking at a sense about like how people relate in general in a way that like in a way Calendar does um, in the way that the Exotica and the Sweet Hereafter do. You know, you can you can you can like look at that and li- you look at those earlier films and then and from that like from that give, like it leads to in- in- interesting questions and thoughts on like and thoughts about how people relate. Whereas this, it's it's kind of removed. It's like in its own like you know tabloid wrapping paper to me.
1: You know. Yeah. Well, I've seen comparisons to the Long Goodbye of all things, and like that kind mm. of like labyrinthian, like American neo noir. And it is, I think, it is the first American film, right? It's the first one set you know in the U.S. with U.S. characters, because um, it's it's right. you know it's a, right. it's, th- it's thinly it's thinly veiled. Uh, Martin and Lewis, you know, uh, as, as, as the protagonists of it. But then, um, how do you feel about, is it Alison Lohman? Is that the name of the woman? Uh,
2: that's correct. That, and, and, and honestly, like at this point, like it's, um, uh, and I have not seen Ararat, so I cannot speak for the casting there, but it's, it seems to be another, another just whiff on the casting. She is like, um, I, I find her. Fairly awful in uh, where the truth lies because I don't want to, because first off, she looks 12 years old. Um, she had, doesn't have, contain any kind of, to me, any kind of level of, of actual basic inquisitiveness. Like she seems to act quite inertly in, in, in great many scenes, you know, uh, where she's reacting to events or, or in fact, just not reacting, just letting events play out. Yeah, uh, in, in a in a way that like I find just in, not satisfying in general, and then especially compared to like um, all of the, um, the characters that Egwene managed to do earlier, which where even if when they're not doing anything, there's clearly things that are driving them that you as an audience member are made apparent about, and and whereas she just like is a lump in a lot of places
1: for me. Yeah, well, it's funny because she's if 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 i'm thinking of the right she's the one that appeared in a several big pro, high profile films she did like the uh matchstick men with ridley scott where her ambiguous age is a lot more uh used to it an advantage with that story but then she did this and she did the uh sam raimi drag me to hell and she disappeared like i think she stopped working like right around then i, I I don't I don't know what the story is that I never really looked up and investigated why she stopped acting but mm-hmm. maybe uh maybe the kind of chilly reception she got for something like Where the Truth Lies played a part in it I don't know. Well, but, he, um,
2: her personality fits Drag Me to Hell quite a bit better, but she is really beset upon by events in that one. Yeah. Um and um and like the lo- and right, Matchstick men, like that level of ambiguity is uh works like works like a charm on that particular movie. Um, but it's, it's kind of more reactive for, for us as viewers, right? Like we're, we're looking at like Loman's character in Max Stickman going, hmm, who, who is this person? You know, um, whereas, um, uh, whereas I think when you're watching her in, in where the truth lies, you're just like when several times I'm, I'm not asking, boy, why, what is driving her to investigate this? And I'm leaving to ask myself, wait. Is she really driving to investigate this? Does she really have an interest in there? Because it's not that apparent to me.
1: Yeah, no, I, I I agree. She I think I think her casting in it is, is probably the thing that really hobbles that that film. Mm-hmm.
2: Um And I wanna say that I wanna just add that like it's and the real tragedy about that is because the other two um. Um. Uh, uh. What was it? Colin, um, Kevin Colin Bacon. Firth. Yeah. Colin Firth and Kevin Bacon are amazing in that picture. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They go and like talk about like talk about reexamining a reexamining a, a mythic a, you know couple in a whole new way,
1: right? Yeah. Well, that, it's funny because these films that deal with the more lurid subject matter, the more commercial, quote unquote, thriller kind of stories. Um, this one and Chloe um they deal with homosexuality in a way that is i can see both sides of it like i can see how it's 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 positive and or it's um especially with Chloe i can i can also see the the side of it that like treats it as a a threat that is a serious problem in both stories but that also speaks to the the uh, the, the, the the other characters i guess and their relationship to it but um, the way I know that the homosexual themes in, in the sexual content in Where the Truth Lies, I, I feel like that's, it, it's, it's, asserted that that's why it got the X rating or the NC-17 rating was because of the, uh, the fact that it'd be, uh, gay sex in the film. Um, I don't know if it's, I mean, and that's what they and actually is the focus of, uh, part of, um, this film is not yet rated, uh, Where the Truth Lies is discussed at length in that. Because um, of the rating and what Agoyan feels was the reasoning behind that uh, that decision.
2: Oh, interesting. I've yet I've yet to see that the uh, Kirby Dick film, right? Kirby Dick directed yeah, that one.
1: Yeah, it, it's. I don't know. I mean, where the truth lies? It's it's an easy film to kind of pass over in his body of work now that it's you know there's some kind of remove from it. I don't know if I've ever met a really big fan of it. Um, if it's again like. I guess this probably falls under the category of interesting failure, but it's there's a lot going on in it. There's definitely pleasures to be had if you're into a Goyan. I think the way that he lingers on the televisual images in the opening credits feels the most like a Goyan to me.
2: <laughs> right? Oh yes, yes. And I mean like and and like um, it, it looks like there's a little bit of a connection between this and sp- this and the actors in the roles and speaking parts. And in um, uh, the mother character in Felicia's Journey. And that, like, it looks like he's kind of also exploring, like, that level of attention. But it's not, like, personal videotapes that people have. But it's stuff that the public knows about, you know. Like, the public personas that people have. And the disparity between the impressions that we have of people who we are, quote-unquote, familiar with in a celebrity way versus the real people underneath.
1: Yeah, and actually, uh, we—I'm not really prepared to speak at length on on Krapp's Last Tape, the uh, the Beckett adaptation he did with John Hurt. I have seen it, but it's—it's it's not one I really have prepared notes on or anything. But it's—it it deals with um with with a with a guy that like records his diaries on reel-to-reel uh, cassette uh, player, and um, it's it's well that that play is about a guy uh, going back to an old recording from hit that he did in his thirties uh, reflecting back on an earlier experience, uh, kind of ruefully from his, from his, uh, coming of age years. And it's, um, it's commenting on memory and technology in a way that I think was real, uh, kind of put a big old light bulb over young Adam Agoyan when he was first getting into playwrights like Agoyan, uh, play, playwrights like, uh, Beckett and, uh, so you can you can see why he would choose to adapt the material and the way that the tape recorder is used in Where the Truth Lies, the way Alison Lohman's character is kind of bringing that to Collingford, like you know, using your your words and I can I can uh, I have I can have power with these words, like with these revelations. Like it, it feels like that that aspect of it feels like something that ties into to uh, themes that. Would recur in other Adam McEwing films, but it, it, in terms of uh, the larger story, I mean, maybe the, just the subjectivity of truth and perspective maybe fits in with a few of the films, but it it does it does feel uh, when when the characters from his old films show up in like an odd scene with the uh, the publishers, and it's like. She shows up and it's Gabriel uh, Gabriel Rose Arsene Kanishan and uh, Don McKellar hanging out in this office. It's like oh, there's like an Adam McGoohan film going on in here. Meanwhile, there's like <laughs> some other <laughs> thriller with Kevin Bacon and uh, Colin Firth that we right. have to go back to. Right,
2: right, right. It's a, it, right. That's a that was a fun that is a fun cameo moment for for Goian fans. Like oh, they brought them all, they got them all along to be in the film with them. That's that's super cool. Yeah. um he um uh yeah like the um the talk on the tape recording like right shades of open house and his earliest short films and that's yeah. such a that's such a prevalent focus on that particular on that particular one and and it kind of shows it shows to me how like this from all the different travails he's had through financing or and uh, the way and all the obstacles to make his film made he is to me one of the like best um uh, filmmakers, if you want to follow the the auteur theory because he's a guy who manages to have his themes like keep coalescing throughout all of his well, throughout all of his work yeah i mean open house yeah. just i'm uh, sorry, just want to add really quick that like that there's, there's a particular sequence in in open house that is echoed in the ending of Felicia's journey in a in a very very um notable way and for, for pretty much I think effectively the same reasons.
1: Yeah, I was going to say um before I forget the uh the tape recorder is also figures in uh uh Howard in particular the uh the early short film uh just with a guy getting fired via tape recorder.
2: <laughs> <laughs> right right. Now now make now all this talk on tape recorders makes me want to uh try uh, going with uh, Clute and uh see make a comparison that way.
1: That I yeah, that would be an interesting one. The um the next film he did kind of So if if Where the Truth Lies, I I don't know if if it's kind of callous to say like maybe an unsuccessful attempt to sell out, but it's definitely like a a film that kind of feels like an overt gesture towards the mainstream after Ararat. The next few things he does are very much personal projects again. So first thing I think he does is the one feature length item that I really wanted to see, but it isn't available is citadel so i actually had a chance to talk to adam McGoin for uh a minute or two uh, a month ago um at a screening of remember and i asked him about citadel um and what that is so it's like a documentary where he and Arsene went to lebanon and it incorporates i guess their uh impressions of the culture there but also incorporates fictional elements on top of that I asked him if there was ever a chance to see this because I don't think he's ever made it commercially available and what he told me was that um, he felt like there was like a certain kind of uh, element of social responsibility involved that he felt like he only needed he only would want to show this film in context where he was there for q and A s to kind of talk people through their impressions of it. You can actually find one of these talks. On YouTube, broken up into four chapters, but it's—I guess he, he d- had concerns about, you know, it being politically irresponsible to put it out without proper context. But I—I I know Jonathan Rosenbaum is a really big fan of it and thinks it's the best film maybe since *Calendar*. Um, so I'm very curious to see it. I—I I, I brought up the comparison to *Calendar* to him because I thought it might be a similar kind of side project kind of thing where he's going overseas to kind of get in touch with some kind of um you know cultural past uh because i guess arsene was born in 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 lebanon Uh, he 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 did say that they were quite different in in uh some strong ways but he didn't elaborate and i haven't seen the film so i can't really say but hoping that one day he makes that you know he either brings that to uh, someplace a little closer because i would love to see it but uh it's one of the mystery films in the filmography. Um, he also did a, a short film called Arteau Double Bill, and I, you can get this as part of this uh, this compilation film that came out in Australia. I, I have to put it in the show notes what the name of it is. I don't know off the top of my head, but it's. Um, it was, it, it was a uh, series of short films done for this film festival. Actually, David Cronenberg, David Lynch, a lot of big directors are participants in it. Lars von Trier. Um, but Devil Double Bill, uh, it deals with characters watching... Um, do, do, have you seen Viva vie My Life to Live, the Godard film? I have not. Okay, so that film, there's a scene in it where... Uh, the uh, the main character, the Ana Karenina character, goes to a theater to watch uh, Dreyer's Passion of Joan of Arc and has this kind of emotional moment watching this scene from the film. And it's a scene about someone watching a scene from a film. Okay. So what Agoyan does is has somebody watching the adjuster in one theater and they're watching the scene where Arsene is watching the uh, the footage for purposes of censorship. Hmm. And the other person is watching Viva V, but watching the scene of Viva S.A.V. Uh, where Anna Karina is watching Passion of Joan of Arc. Ah. So it's it's reflecting back on films about uh people watching films, you know. Um it's that very self-reflexive, postmodern kind of thing. He actually does a um I forget the name of it. I think it's uh what is it called? Oh, eight and a half screens. Um it was this installation piece built around a sequence from Fellini's Eight and a Half where they're watching footage and like uh it's it's footage of people watching that footage, I guess. Huh. It, so it, th- th- there's a certain kind of imagery he's attracted to uh, just film within film or the idea of people watching spectators, watching spectators like that Hall of Mirrors kind of thing mm-hmm. um, that I don't think our double bill is online anywhere. But uh, the uh, there's footage from eight and a half screens on YouTube that's um, worth checking out. But they um, the next proper feature... Uh, is adoration and adoration to me feels like the last film uh, today that really feels personal um, as a uh, as, as a uh, you know written and directed by Adam Ogoyan kind of film um, there's other films he wrote after this but they they feel like there's commercial considerations taken into account this feels like a small scale character drama really. Kind of emotional in some places, like very eerie in other places. Have you seen this one? Oh yes, i um, uh,
2: Yeah, I and, and I agree. It is um, uh, it is uh, from the films I was able to see post uh, Exotica, like very much a return to form from him. Like his his uh, concerns um, on 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 technology and um and uh, and and intimacy and the people, the way like people's feelings can get displaced from uh and rearranged in terms of on these configurations in all sorts of weird ways it just uh, remanifested itself and it also seemed to me to also be a progression like i mean what i really liked is how he is continually thoughtful upon like technology moving forward and he does a real there's a really interesting multi-video chat feature that happens during adoration and the idea and and which i i kind of really like in a in a visual and cinematic way because it's basically like this grid like this super imposed hollywood squares brady bunch uh grid of many people all vying their opinions at once in a in a visual way so it works as like so it works as kind of like showing this cacophonous mosaic which i think is a really nice representation of our modern times, honestly, where like um uh, so much like opinions can get like um vastly like, you know, fold in on themselves and and the echo chamber nature of our discourse in the era of Twitter is like, I think, really anticipated by his visual by this kind of um concept that he brought brings up.
1: Now, I agree with I agree with all of that. I think it's in a way it harkens back to things like family viewing also in that it has like this this young man that's probably meant to be a young, like a stand in for the young Adam O'Goyan, you know, at that age, like the, um, the, his relationship to his past and cultural authenticity. And the fact that his, his father was, you know, uh, and was he Palestinian? I'm trying to think, or no, was he Armenian? What was the, do you remember the, hmm. the national origin of that character? I, I, well, I
2: think one of the, I'm not sure about the origin, but I think one of the other ways that he was a little bit ahead of his time um, um, with Adoration was the issue of terrorism
1: and how well, people. It's a, it's a post 9-11 film.
2: Yes. But and... uh, if anything, I think that environment is, is even more like, or at least in the U.S., is even more fearful now.
1: Yeah. Well, the thing with that one is is that so the premise of this one is that there's a a student in a in a in a class and his French teacher uh, is for the lesson is reading a, re- a news report of a terrorist who planted a bomb on his pregnant uh, girlfriend and it's intercepted. It's a, uh, you know by uh, by Israeli uh, security and uh, the tragedy is prevented. What? The uh, the boy then does is writes a uh, he interprets this and writes an essay from the perspective of the son of that terrorist, saying that this was his father. And she reads this and encourages him to present it to the class as a fact rather than as a fiction. He is playing this role, and what they're each getting out of this playing is different and part of the drama like why why is she encouraging him to do this what what is she hoping to confront is she just is she trying to cause trouble in the community in this kind of small town where there's you know prejudice against arabs or is it a uh you know is it is it something deeper with a guy? it's usually something a little bit more complicated but it's playing with kind of uh you know, xenophobia in a way that is, uh, interesting. And, but, but tying back into, uh, you know, the way technology is brought into this whole affair and, uh, loss and ritual, it's, it's an interesting film. And it, each time I go back to it, it, it kind of rises higher in the ranks for me that this might feel more like one of his masterpieces, um, and maybe the only film since Exotica that i have that feeling with um it 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 was a it, but it was completely out of step with the fashions of the marketplace when it came out it was i think maybe the biggest commercial uh misfire uh since before Exotica um and i think that how I read it is that his reaction to the uh, reception of Adoration, I think, informs all the, the future work. I think he leaves the experimenting to short films or installations or whatever, but the, the feature films are commercially minded. I think he no longer trusts that the audience he made films like The Adjuster or Speaking Parts or Exotica 4 uh, exists. I don't think he uh and I could I could be wrong I mean I don't know that he's literally said that but that's the impression I got.
2: Oh uh, that that would be um an incredible shame adoration is criminally under underseen, and I mean and it and it reaches like it reaches to heights that 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 approach that approach stuff like exotica um calendar the sweet hereafter like you can at least see that you can at least see that on the horizon. And and I think like it is very much like speaking to themes that are, like, I think important to, like, important for people to consider uh, today. Like, like the way, I mean, the way that people, like, the validity that people give to stories in order to kind of justify their own actions is something that, like, like I think society is can be really, really suspect to. So any film that can, like, actually give an exploration as to, hey, what's really truthfully going on in this kind of uh is definitely worthy of viewing, but it has a really great, a really solid emotional component. Like this, this sense of loss or absence is so courses through this, uh, this film. And like the, and like this look of a, of a, this look of a past and a sense of the kind of things you need to do to reconcile with said past is, Uh, I think really prevalently brought about in a way that audiences can not just you know appreciate on an intellectual level but also feel that sensibility in adoration and um, and it's also just really really visually captivating too, like the way like that music store contrasted like with the outside is is just is our really uh, shows that like the visual ways of representing the feelings of the characters and their actions is very, very... I find very, very strong in Adoration.
1: Yeah, I do too. I think that um, there's that scene in the opening uh, of the film where the boy is observing the woman with the violin on the dock. Yes. That uh, the way that it's kind of framed... It, it, it's like the use of landscape. The uh, it, it recalls things like the adjuster and Sweet Hereafter um, to me. Like that... Uh, it's, it's with an eye towards really um striking compositions um or even the way that when when Arsene's character shows up at night in the uh kind of in the paraphernalia like the uh the the religious garb it it, it's spooky Mm
0: -hmm. in a way
1: that like it 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 plays it plays up on the xenophobes fears of like (laughs) cultural other on your doorstep at night
2: Mm Yes, exactly, and like I find like the use of the vi uh, of the use of like um uh, the violin is so really uh really cool. Like it's a it's an object that like um uh, like that's a case of like where where like it's the where the use of an object to like to understand what it mean the sentimental value of it is something that's given open for an audience to appreciate, and yet is also in contrast with the character as we have like taken to believe he's supposed to act you know and also it's it's also a contrast to the cultural things that we are assuming that he would be interested in kind of i ironically it harkens back to um the kind of uh armenian slash spanish guitar playing that is uh one of the focuses of next of kin
1: that's interesting yeah i never thought about that but you're right um yeah, and this is also one where technology is symbolically destroyed by by fire at one point. That's right. <laughs> in a way that uh, reminded me a little bit of the way fire, uh, you know, consumes the home in in the Adjuster. But uh, very much so. Yeah, uh, it's it's criminally underseen, and I always kind of hope that uh, I know the Criterion Collection has never uh, put out any Agorn films. I don't know if that's intentionally or not, but uh, I always kind of hope that films like this get their uh, proper reappraisal it feels like you know so many of his films are outside of uh exotica and the sweet hereafter um really are unfairly ignored um this one uh, i guess is is uh probably the, the least seen of his great films i think probably even less seen than things like speaking parts and adjuster
2: yeah, that's a that's a real shame. I mean, yeah, Criterion, you get 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 on track here. You know, we've we've uh you don't need to put in another Kurosawa or Max Ophuls there if like there you have <laughs> if you're completely egoyan free. That's that's just ridiculous.
1: <laughs> well sometimes it's a matter of the rights. I know that uh, side Zeitgeist controls most of the films uh pre uh pre Exotica and um I don't even know that adjuster or exotica uh or even Sweet Hereafter are in print in the US. I think uh, there are great Blu-ray editions from Canada uh for Exotica and the Sweet Hereafter. Um but I don't know if um even the adjuster I don't know if those films are even in print. I could be wrong, I'd have to look, but I feel like I feel like even his major commercial successes outside of Chloe are are surprisingly unavailable. And I think that speaks to how, fall, how, how far out of fashion he's fallen. And I mean, this kind of informs all the recent films we're going to be talking about. Like he's someone like Hal Hartley or like Peter Greenaway, or, uh, I mean, there's probably a few other examples that I can't, I can't come to mind, but like Todd, Todd Salons, um, where there was a time when they were really hot, critically. Um, they were never big money makers, but they were event filmmakers. I mean, for a certain kind of film goer. And I think that... I correct me if you if you feel otherwise but it feels like the uh American independent art house culture of today is a lot less uh welcoming to uh challenging narrative films.
2: Yeah, it seems it, it seem kind of does seem that way. Yeah. I mean the um uh, I don't know what's I don't know what necessarily is the basis for it, but yeah, like I've over the years, I've noticed that like at least a lot of the art house um, theaters in Chicago are, are it's um, I, are now like catering to a kind of a Miramaxian like um, style of film, you know, like uh, like uh, kind of conventional stories, but shown in, you know, exotic locations and um, uh, and with vaguely different looking people, uh, i.e. British. Um, yeah. And so you're and and so it's. It's the idea is that, oh, you, you know, audiences have a taste for unfamiliar, but just not too unfamiliar. Let's, let's, let's not get too crazy here.
1: Yeah. I think, I think Michael Haneke and Lars von Trier, who both, uh, much more severe and pessimistic visionaries are, are probably the only real exceptions, uh, in, in terms of like finding real distribution for, you know, difficult works but
2: um and then also there's we might be also in having an abundance of riches too because right because like now distribution channels have expanded so much so that like at like any given weekend now there's a potential for right 6 to 8 new films to be available for audiences so maybe that's just cutting in slices of a potential audience enough so that like like uh the kind of ironic tragedy is that like there's so many options that people that people aren't able to get behind particular artists because there's so many other options out there.
1: Yeah. I mean, someone like a Goyan that's, you know, was able to work at one time with like five or $10 million. I don't know how much he really wants to go back to micro budgets for artistic freedom. I mean, I don't know. I, I And I, I just don't know if he thinks it's worth the time and effort for something that is going to be, uh, not really seen by a larger public. I think I I, I could be wrong. I, I just it just feels like that's his attitude when it comes to the more recent work. The next film after Adoration is the most commercial film to my mind. It's an Ivan Reitman production, no less. It's a uh, Chloe, uh, a remake of uh, Natalie, uh, the French film. Um, this is another. Uh, well, this is a case where it's not even his screenplay, but he's bringing his. I guess, his his name to the project. Uh, but this is him working with Julianne Moore and Liam Neeson, like big stars. Um, and it wound up being his biggest hit, uh, not in America, but overall with the international box office. Um, what do you think of Chloe? Because I know that this one isn't a... This one isn't, like, a critical favorite. If anything, this is kind of, um, like, his Magic mic, Like, his hit that's hard to explain for (laughs) cinephiles that, you know, get into serious discussions of the work.
2: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, like, I mean, after I was, um, uh, after I had seen, like, um, uh, where the um, truth lies, I was just kind of looked at Chloe as, like, uh, a bit of a curiosity. I was looking at it as a way of of saying, uh, of seeing, like, he's um i guess he's just trying to do a like um a conven- a more conventional kind of uh uh thriller story uh but so i was actually ple- very pleasantly surprised because it it was a case where he it was a case of smuggling worthy of the um uh, uh, eggs from exotica to me because he manages to because <laughs> he manages to take the uh, he manages to take this Thriller, and I think it's very effective at, at, at doing that. But underneath it, it is actually telling a completely different story—one about where Julianne Moore's character is like uh, coming to um, coming to grips with like a part of her personality she didn't even realize she had. Kind of like maybe um uh, maybe a more satisfying
1: thing to what happens to her in Safe, in a way. Yeah, that's interesting. I think. I think when I think about Chloe, I think about it in terms of the way I think about like side effects, in that it feels like a throwback to a kind of glossy uh middle class, upper middle class thriller, like the kind that Adrian Lyon used to specialize in, or you know, things like Jagged Edge, like a certain kind of eighties uh glossy suspense picture and um you know, attractive people, attractive locations, uh very uh kind of quick pace. Um, but yeah, but in the best sense, I mean, it's, it's not, I don't think it condescends to your intelligence. I think, I think the thing with films that have a soft core element or can be marketed as softcore, I think it, it's, people just have a really difficult time taking it seriously. Um, and it's so funny because art film directors so frequently get kind of thrown into the soft core erotica uh, you know, like that's where the, you know if 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 people aren't funding the art, they have to go for in this direction. In a lot of cases, I mean, I'm thinking about not just Agoyan, but I'm thinking of Nicholas Rogue or Ken Russell or Valerian Barovchik or uh, you know a number of direct. I mean, it, it, I, we we kind of hinted earlier, like the way that like something like Bergman or Rossellini's you know art films were sold for their sexual content. But I think that like um, someone like Agoyan. You know, he can he can tackle lurid subject matter, but because he is this, you know, can prize-winning, Oscar-nominated kind of artist, people that might not normally take their clothes off might take their clothes off in his film, and the distributors love <laughs> that kind of thing. Because that way, you know, it's like, you know, the, the the notion of sex selling, it does sell, but it doesn't sell people that necessarily tell their friends about it. But, mm-hmm, so that mm-hmm. Chloe can be a much bigger hit, or Exotica can be a much bigger hit than Sweet after, but nobody... Nobody the word of mouth is a different thing.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah,
2: it's it's really interesting to compare to me, for me to compare Chloe with uh, with something as Exotica because I find Exotica is is just a masterpiece, but master of all one piece, it's, it's 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 a complete own entity. And it seems like Chloe by comparison is is sort of like separated in a way. Like sometimes when you're like if you have um uh, a director who's, who's made so many, like, like, uh, highly acknowledged films, like, and then you're treating a subject of, like, uh, of Chloe, which is kind of like a jagged edge, like you were describing the Adrian Lin side. There's, there could be a potential tendency of, you know, not taking it seriously or winking or being ironic about it. And I don't find that in, um, Chloe at all. Like, if he, yeah, he goes and he's, he's, he takes, he takes the material with that level of seriousness that um uh that it's and with the uh intent of what it's uh what it's trying to do um but in and and i just love how he manages to put in this story like the story of julianne moore's character um progression and just make it like a natural occurrence like just like it's um kind of it's a more of a uh m like Shyamalan kind of way in how like you don't realize that's what's happening, but if you watch the movie again after you see the revelations, you'll notice that he's been sprinkling the details. He yeah. adds, a, he has a moment there and a, and a, and a glance there, um, but it was in front of you in plain sight. But you, um, uh, but you were um, so involved in the thriller aspect of the story that maybe you wouldn't have p- picked up on it at first glance. So I yeah. love that level of cinematic subterfuge uh, that he did. Whereas, you know, Exotica, there's, it's all about itself you know but this was uh this was a great example of uh, cinematic smuggling on his part for me
1: yeah i think you know i mean and it's funny cuz even if you've seen Natalie it takes it takes liberties with that story uh, it makes changes that are much more substantial uh i think than say any changes that departed makes to infernal affairs you know for an example of a glossy mm-hmm. uh, big budget remake of a foreign film of recent years but right. the um, the thing with Chloe, um, I find yeah. You know, I mean, I think it's definitely in that kind of jagged edge. Not jagged edge, but like um, uh, play Misty for me, Fatal Attraction kind of story. Mm-hmm, uh, that's right. But um, but from a woman perspective, uh, so it's it, I think. Which, by the I, way, I just have to add:
2: how rare is that, right? To literally oh, yeah. to literally look at it from look at it from the uh, the female perspective and give and give it like that level of value and authority.
1: Well, I think the thing that people find problematic about Chloe is how, I guess, I guess because of the, the sociopolitical uh, aspect of, of treating any story with like a gay theme, the way in which and this is going to be a spoiler for Chloe, but the way in which Chloe is so unceremoniously done away with and how everybody just kind of not only is restored to normal, but like almost even kind of. Uh, absorbs her in a way. like I mean, I, I know, it's like a, was it like a hairpin or something? Like There, there was like a, a a token of Chloe that Julianne Moore has, has you know, b- b- uh, taken as part of her uh, wardrobe. Do you feel like this is a case where Egoyan is, and I, know, I think I know your answer, but I, I'm just putting it out as devil's advocate, do you feel like this is a case where uh a homosexual story is is intruded on a uh, a safe heterosexual normal suburban family, and uh, you know that's the threat. And then she's killed off, and they and it brings their family closer together.
2: That <laughs> <laughs> um uh, well quite the mm, I, I think a bit of a con- quite the contrary. It's that like yeah. it's it's that it is um Chloe has had uh, I think it Chloe's um, presence has irrevocably changed the 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 like the family dynamic. And, and in fact, it's kind of meant to be, I, I treat, I take the ending as just like sort of an ironic commentary on like, um, uh, on such endings, which right, like fatal attraction, like you must resume the family unit after the threat has been disposed of. Yeah, but, I... but it, it turns out that like that, that it puts in the clothing about that, but, but it turns out the actual emotional thing, uh, emotional changes, have have like um uh met that like no no, that unit will not and never ever be the same
1: yeah i i mean i I don't know that that ending the reading of the ending is is my impression, but i can I can see how it can be read that way, and I've seen r- reviews that get quite offended by it because uh, they interpret it that way, and I mean that's the, always the tricky thing about like reading everything through a sociopolitical kind of lens is you know you can you can find yourself getting uh, interpreting things in a way that you find offensive, I, I and I don't know. I mean, if the target audience of Chloe, how it, how that audience, which is a more mainstream audience, reads that component of it, I just, it's something I find interesting. I mean, I, and I don't know how much it's deliberately meant to be controversial on Agoyan's part because it's not his screenplay
2: right um, he doesn't right he doesn't explicitly comment on the the, the um, on those like those societal expectations that we place upon like who how threatening is it that like a relationship turns into a and goes in that particular direction like he's not he's not expressly uh, like r- referencing that so it's kind of left open in the air and then if um uh if you have like a particular issue on the uh, on like how chloe is treated as a character you can clearly run with it on on those levels
1: yeah, I would say just as if you invited a group of uh, non-cinephiles over for movie night, Chloe is the one that most plays like a normal movie <laughs> in terms of like being a pop entertainment film in the Hologuian catalog. And I think it's 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 entertaining without. I don't I don't find it to be uh, dumbed down in any noticeable way for a, a more commercial film. I think it's I think it works as an entertainment, but it's. It's not one I find as rich as his great films, but I think it's, I think it has its own pleasures.
2: Yes, it's, um, uh, I mean, it it is right, it's, right, it doesn't go as, cut as deeply as some of his his other films, but, I mean, uh, it's, it is a pretty solid to very, very good example of that type of film, but that's, I think, maybe less of a statement upon, like, how well Egwene put it together, versus the fairly abysmal low bar such films really have to do their cross.
1: Right. It'll, it'll make you squirm less than basic instinct. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I noticed we're at the three hour mark. We did take a little break, but we're going to have to start, uh, zipping through. I know we have three more here, but, uh, I know you haven't seen, I'll just kind of go over, um, cause you haven't seen the devil, uh, you know, devil's not or the captive, right? Correct. So devil's not to me feels like the biggest, um, the most disappointing film, I guess. It, it, it deals with the uh, the West Memphis Three case, uh, and in a way, it kind of harkens back to something like Gross Misconduct and other true crime melodrama. That and it feels the most like something that could have gone straight to cable. Um, it has some big A list talent in it. It has Colin Firth coming back after Where the Truth Lies. It has Reese Witherspoon, and they're fine in it. I think that. It gets a little bit more problematic when dealing with characters that we know really well from the documentaries, like the Paradise Lost films, um, because they feel like movie characters or even um, in the case of Mark Byers, like a uh, like an SNL parody of that real person. To my mind, Um, I think that it also becomes a little bit trickier when you're dealing with the subjectivity of truth issue on a film about a real life case where... I think Agoyan believes they're innocent. I think most people believe they're innocent, but you know the way that the film plays, it's a little bit. You you see why they might be suspicious of these teenagers, and I know that Damien Echols, for one, was a little bit cautious about even being involved in that film because he felt like it was revictimizing him in a sense. Um, it's. I found it a little bit more you know, tolerable on the second viewing because I thought it was a complete disaster the first time I saw it. Oh really? Uh, it's. Yeah, I thought it was embarrassing. And going back to it now, I'm I'm softening that stance a little bit, but I still think it's 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 my least favorite thing he's done by far. Mm. And uh I think there's inherent interest in that subject matter. I think that um there's plenty of good things to recommend about it. I mean it's Adam McGoy and he he knows what he's doing in a lot of uh capacities, but I think that it's it's uh it, it's it's mostly uh forgettable i think um
2: hmm. what was the but, thing that you found like most uh, objectionable to how um uh, to, to the film that makes you find it such an embarrassment
1: i you know i think it's just some of the the performances in it i i don't think quite work i think the, the i think the casting of Damian eccles is a little problematic and that's a big part of it i think that um I think because I already know the ending at all times, it's a little bit hard for the suspense to work because I know I know more than the film knows about what's going to happen to these people that I feel like that kind of undercuts the experience for me. I just feel like I know this story so well from the real people that a dramatization of it, I feel like even one that has some style, it just doesn't have enough style to it. And I think that the um, the fact that he's kind of anchored to a certain degree of uh, responsibility in terms of uh, illustrating the facts kind of like cuts into his sense of adventure. And I feel like compared to something like Ararat, it is not as narratively bold in playing with uh, true events versus, you know, subjectivity or... Mm -hmm. yeah, you know, and, and, and it's another story of a uh, community rocked by loss and tragedy, so it has these superficial resonances with exotica and the Sweet you're after, but I feel like those films are far richer and I feel like that I feel like those are an unfortunate comparison, you know, to put devil's knot against those kind of uh, achievements. There is actually a shot of a search party at one point where it looks to my eye like <laughs> characters that are dressed a little bit like Elias Coteus and Mira Kershna's character huh. walk by the frame that could be my imagination huh. though I don't know if that's a deliberate joke well it doesn't seem like the kind of film that would have that kind of wink to it but um
2: well that film like like just harkens back to what you were talking about that short installation he did of films watching films you know and like um uh, perhaps that like perhaps that kind of level of continu- echoing reflecting upon your own work is um uh maybe something that's coming across but one of the things i find that like is really cosmically ironic is that um the the, the kind of films that like uh that would explore the west memphis three um and done in the egoyan style were actually done by the original trilogy of films by the documentary filmmakers right like yeah. the level like so much of those films right are concerned about like like the videotaped confe- videotaped statements and recordings, and and how communities like overreact to because of their own fears and their own desires to what they're witnessing. And so I, I feel like almost like it's ironic that his film is so less successful, since I think a world where Egoyan um uh, where Egoian created things with themes like speaking parts and the adjuster and and calendar which explore these issues, if it wasn't for... Egoyan helped bring about the kind of filmmaking that would allow for
1: the Paradise Lost films to be made. You see what I'm saying? I do see what you're saying. Yeah, I I think that it's it's maybe worth a watch if your expectations are low, but I, I would say that it's it's near the bottom of, of Adam Egoyan's achievements as a filmmaker. Hmm. Um, whereas I thought that The Captive, which was... Pretty poorly received also, and I think at this point by people that had already made up their minds that Adam McGowan was maybe done or or in a in a fallow kind of patch of his career. Um The Captive I think is surprisingly underrated. I think it's actually pretty a pretty good film, really. I mean it I think if it has a problem, so this is a story about a family that is uh has had their daughter abducted by a pedophile and has been missing for many years. And the, they, uh, the husband played by Ryan Reynolds, which might be part of the problem of people taking it seriously because of Ryan Reynolds. <laughs> casting. Although he's fine in it. Um, but I think maybe, I think on some level, maybe just because people don't take him seriously, this was, uh, no, through no fault of his or a you know, part of the problem with people, how they received the film. Um, but it's it's a story where the, the Ryan Reynolds character has never stopped looking for for his daughter, uh, and it, it, it plays back and forth between the the timelines as far as like when she was abducted, and her as now an adult living with this child predator uh, in isolation for her coming of age you know years, and now she's an adult, and you know one thing pedophiles don't want to have sex with is adults. <laughs> So now that kind of puts a weird, you know, kink in their kind of dynamic. And uh, it, it's dealing with some fairly disturbing material. I think that Agoyan had expressed some concern about even filming the story because the child molestation, child molestation angle is so disturbing that, you know, you have to be careful on how you treat that. I don't even know if that subject matter in the first place is what kept audiences away or if it just ran into distribution problems through, I don't know who acquired it. I, I don't know what the story is, because it, it was pretty, uh, it was not widely seen. You can see it on Amazon Prime and things like that. It, it has a, uh, you know, Blu-ray release. I think um, it's a Nagoyan original. I mean, but it is one that feels the most like his adaptations of other people's stories. Um, it huh. has superficial connections to things like this, the, the kind of snowy landscape-driven small town. It feels like it could be one town over from where The Sweet After* is shot. Um, I think that it has real momentum and good performances. I think the performance, I think I mentioned this earlier, of the character um, who plays the villain is a little bit too on the nose as far as like the creepy pedophile but I don't know that it it doesn't I I think if you put that in front of an average viewer it it would work as what it's meant to do I don't I don't know I think I think that this would probably have a much wider audience If if it was actually put in front of a large audience I think it would actually work I think that because a going is so reliant on critical consensus Mm -hmm. for the films to find a certain kind of foothold in theaters that because the critics made up their mind that this was a flop that I, I feel like this would have actually been a hit had, had the critics been behind it. Mm. Um, which I don't think that of devil's not, I think this, this st- shows a major rebounding towards, if not like the level of something like adoration, um, it's at least as good as Chloe as, as, as just entertainment. And I say entertainment kind of in quotes, because it's dealing with some like really, Sad uh, subject matter.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, how like um uh, how like formal is it like Does it have any attempts at like the kind of adventurousness uh, in terms of like filmmaking that like uh, that Agui and his
1: previous work to some extent because it does deal with like a non linear telling of the <laughs> narrative and it does deal with um, technology and the internet and chat rooms and surveillance. Cameras And again, like the Hoskins character, I mean, this character, you know, you know, the villain has a, uh, a real knack for hidden cameras that uh-huh. might feel like slightly absurd um, to some viewers. I but see. Uh, but it's, um, I think, I think it's, you know, if not like a hidden masterpiece or anything, but I think it's definitely uh, a thriller that I, I'm surprised isn't better regarded. Um, but I don't know. It's the same thing as Chloe where I think, you know, I think on some level people might think that he's just because he's not making films that are so overtly like the earlier Adam McGowan films that they just see them as commercial projects and they don't have the same critical, um, they're not hip films. I mean, they're dealing with like you know mainstream actors and more sensationalist kind of subject matter. But
2: mm-hmm. yeah, um, I think people need to. I think people can should like be just a little uh, keep uh, in mind that like you can make like you can have all sorts of interesting angles and 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 amazing and amazing details like even the most like commercial based subject like um like from what you're talking on the captive it um. It like um, reminds me of a, a film by a fellow Canadian, of his Dennis Villeneuve's, um, uh, uh the Prisoners, uh, or Prisoners rather, and like Prisoners is also dealing in dealing in like kind of a disreputable sense of uh, a disreputable subject matter of like uh, child abduction, but but within within its length, it manages to both like like deal with such really fascinating subjects of unlike like um religion and faith and. And like, and masculinity and what that means in like the modern world. But then also deal with like these just really evocative imagery too. Like, like there's a very unique like suitcase in that uh, movie. I won't say spoil any more about it, but like even within the confines of a particular like, of a particular kind of film, there still is a plenty of opportunity towards giving like, you know, resonance and thoughtfulness and, and considerations uh, within it.
1: Yeah. I I think prisoners is a very good, uh, yeah, that's, that's something you could point to as a kind of film. I I think that, that the captive could have had that same degree of crossover. Um, but, uh, I, I, you know, not a lot of people agree with me on this. It is just my opinion, Uh, (laughs) but I think that it's, I think that it's, it's, um, of the later films, it's, it's one that I think is, is worth seeking as entertainment. And I would say that also about remember, um, Remember is is another one that well, this one has a, not an original screenplay, but it's a um well this one you've seen also right so what was your take on oh, Remember?
2: Oh no, alas, I have not had a chance to view this uh, view this uh, picture. Very much looking oh. forward to it. It is it is I don't believe it made it to Chicago apart from like a single um, uh, showing at the uh, International Film Festival, which I had which I had missed. It will be, well, it'll be playing in Chicago in two or three weeks, and I'm very eagerly anticipating it.
1: Okay, well, I will just say then, because I, uh, I'm assuming most people haven't seen it. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. cause it's brand new and, and it's only kind of, I think it just came to Philadelphia. I caught it in New York, but, um, it's, it's, so it's, it's like a, uh, <laughs> it's like a geriatric revenge vigilante film. <laughs> um, oh. and it's dealing with a character that, is a little bit of a mixture of dementia and denial. Um, it sounds like them? they
2: might have, like, um, Liam Neeson could be brought back from Chloe if you're talking about geriatric revenge films,
1: right? Yeah, well, I mean, and I think that, yeah, I, I'm not going to spoil anything. it. It's dealing with, uh, basically someone hunting down, uh, I mean, the, 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 if you were just to pitch it to Hollywood, like, it's a guy with dementia hunting down Nazis, ha huh. Um, and i i don't want to say more about it than that because it's um you know if you haven't seen it i don't want to spoil anything and most listeners probably haven't seen it yet. i would say that i the the ending i get why it's a controversial ending and i kind of am not a big fan of where they go with it but i would say that as a uh a captivating thriller that it's it's one of the most solidly entertaining films for a mass audience. If a mass audience actually shows up for it. Um, it seems like if it's still taking that long to get to Chicago, a mass audience is not going to see it, <laughs> but maybe if it shows up on streaming, you know, forums that, uh, you know, it, it, it might uh, actually develop word of mouth uh, because it's, it's you know, Christopher Plummer is, is great in it. Um, it, it has, uh, I mean, I was definitely invested in it. I think there's a lot of really strong set pieces in it. It doesn't feel uh, so much like a Goyan in superficial ways. Like it's totally, totally linear, uh, and it does not have, um, you know, any of the socio political. Well, no, I take that back. There is socio political commentary in it, but it's not. It's not necessarily the kind you associate with a Goyan. Is mm-hmm. all I would say. Okay. Um, but yeah, definitely uh, would say it's worth a look. Um, I think I've read some things that say it's a return to form. It's not, to my mind, a return to you know, adoration, uh, let alone Exotica level of achievement. But it's it's definitely a smart, fun thriller. And sometimes that's all you need.
2: <laughs> okay, well, great. I'm uh, very much looking forward to seeing what the, what that would be like. And I'm I am uh, really, really hoping that like um, uh, like uh, Iguain is not too discouraged from like the the filmmaking landscape, or he's able to find like outlets and distribution methods where his uh, films his films can come through. Because having not seen um uh, having not seen the, the captive or um uh, or the or the devil's not, I have I have yet to be like um disappointed in uh, disappointed in, in in his films as a whole, even films where like um, Felicia's journey and where the truth lies, where I found in the elements to be disappointing, there's fascinating and, and, and tremendously effective um, components to those guys as well.
1: Yeah. I think, I think if, if I put devil's knot and where the truth lies and uh, yeah, I guess those would probably be the closest to, and maybe Felicia's journey to some extent uh, near the bottom, there's still so much that's interesting about those films. And I, I know that sometimes I get blinders, when it comes to auteurs, because I find just tracing the patterns through a filmmaker's body of work, I get more pleasure just from tracing those patterns than maybe a viewer that's never has no idea who Adam McGoey is might get from those films.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so it's you know, I mean, that definitely like kind of informs my opinion of them. But I don't think he's made a film that isn't worth at least a cursory watch, mm-hmm. um, even devil's not, which I think I, is probably the one I'm hardest on. I don't know that the average person might prefer that to something as difficult as, you know, error or the adjuster.
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, really hope that like, uh, the film landscape, um, uh, is, uh, gets to a point where like people will have an opportunity for review upon Pontegoyan's work. And I mean, uh, uh because, uh, because, you know, we're familiar with like certain directors, um, uh, uh, who like uh, were uh, like notably like Hitchcock who was like not not really taken um fully seriously and his genius was not recognized until like the fully until the French New Wave. So uh who who knows if out there somewhere um in the near future there isn't some uh there isn't some like um new waivers uh who are gonna give um uh, uh, Egoian's work the critical real appraisal it so absolutely deserves
1: yeah well i always i've said this elsewhere on other podcasts that i always was surprised that there's never really been a a new wave engendered by youtube and given some of the thematic concerns of igoyan's early work and his prime i feel like that that could be very influential to someone that was to take that medium you know into a new kind of wave of filmmaking i mean that the way that video and, and, and capturing memory. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of material that someone could, could draw upon from, uh, from that, from that form. Most but, uh, definitely. Yeah. I'm looking, uh, I think, I think, uh, I think we should wrap up now. And, uh, so let's, let's give, do you want to give a top three? I, I, I know that sometimes we cheat with top fives, but I would, you are <laughs> call
2: Cheat with top fives. That's uh not... That's interesting. I think I would have a top eight uh, Egoian uh, in film, but like to do, um, I guess to get it, uh, I'm fine with limiting it to three for
1: uh, for this particular. Yeah, I, I can too. Win. So what would, what were your three? My be?
2: my three would be like for 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 third place. I I think I would put in um, uh, I'd put in like the um uh, uh speaking parts because I mean I basically think like it's I think like the um. Uh, Sex, Lives, and videotape was the training wheels to the um, speaking parts as a jet engine it just like goes and takes takes those elements and then runs with it in a level that's just amazing, captivating like and creative and in so many different ways and um my, my second would be calendar because calendar is I kind of think his most personal work his most intimate work in a way it's not is intimate with his it's intimate with his uh, his personal life it's intimate with his feelings about his his culture and where he came from and it's also intimate about his filmmaking and and the purposes behind it and it does this through like these numerous like numerous filmmaking methods and techniques and its explorations on time and video are like i find this endlessly revealing and and for number one i would put i would put exotica it's um uh, which i consider the third best movie ever made honestly it's just in terms of like It's, it's visuals, it's themes, it's expansive, like, like characters and the way, I mean, the way it treats like time, grief, pain, memory, and, um, and like, and most off, like the way it takes, like, like these subjects that people find difficult to acknowledge within themselves and in others and gives it a level of humanity and empathy is just one of the most tremendous achievements on a film that I've seen, so... That's that's why I would put that number one.
1: Yeah, well, I knew your number one was definitely going to be exotic. <laughs>
2: yeah, there's no no and doubt uh, about that.
1: <laughs> yeah, and then unfortunately, I'm going to make this so boring by having. <laughs> um, so my number three is speaking parts. Um, okay, I think that it's, and I hate leaving off uh, the adjuster and next of kin, uh, but speaking parts. There's a. Uh, there's a like an eeriness to it and then then the tied with the melancholy in a way that i find really captivating i find there's just so many moments in it that i really treasure that that i i giving it just barely over the adjuster okay um two i'm gonna put exotica which i think is is perfect a uh We've already kind of, you know, go, got over why it's so perfect. I would just say that it's, you know, one of the key films of the 90s. Uh, I, I, it never gets old. And then, uh, number one, I'm putting Calendar, because I just find it the most emotionally moving uh, exploration of his themes for me. Mm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But, uh, yeah, no, this was fun. I, I hope uh, hope Jim can whittle this down into something that is not... Uh, longer than uh, any two Adam Mcguire films back to back that you care <laughs> to program. Um, but uh, where can uh, where can listeners uh, read more of your stuff? Oh well, you can um, uh,
2: you can find me. I have a site where I taught where I review movies and put up my impressions upon film. Uh, you can find that at uh, Cinemal 2001wordpresscom dot uh, dot C i n m e a l two zero zero one dot wordpress and uh and then you can addition read these like um, occasional impressions on on subject film subjects like the latest one is why i think clubber lang from rocky three is the first video game character put in a movie
1: Hmm. i want to read that (laughs) cool
2: (laughs) i look forward to hearing your thoughts on that if you get a chance to read it
1: (laughs) yeah yeah i um yeah, you can find right, well. I mean, you can check out my podcast if you like, Supporting Characters. It's on iTunes now, and you can find more about it at www.nowplayingnetwork.net. Um, also on Letterboxd, Uh if you want to follow me there, you're welcome to. But uh, well, thank you very much, Al, for for joining me on this uh, discussion of Adam McGoan and uh, everyone that's still here. Thanks for listening.
2: Hey, yes, uh, it was my pleasure. and It was a really a really great conversation to explore, like his um. His uh, a really varied yet amazingly consistent kind of body of work that I found. And it leaves me a lot of new avenues to explore his uh, films on both his films I haven't seen yet and to rewatch the films that I have seen. So, hey, thanks for uh, uh, letting me join you for this discussion. And uh, thanks for you guys for
0: uh, listening in.